you will need to fuel regularly and you will need to rest regularly. This is a marathon and not a sprint, but oh my God, it's worth it. It is the most valuable work I think uh, that I have ever done. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, friends, and welcome or welcome back to the Rethinking Education podcast. Rather excitingly, this week, I was contacted by someone who works for another podcast asking whether we might be able to come to some sort of mutual promotional arrangement. Ordinarily, I'm not sure I'd be comfortable with the idea of you seeing other podcasts, but in this case, I am happy to make an exception. Now I'm Grown Up is a new podcast hosted by Jenny Murray, who, as you may know, is the host of Women's Hour on Radio 4 for the last 30 years or so. The podcast is sponsored by Now Teach, a new organisation that's dedicated to persuading people in their older years to switch careers into the classroom. It's kind of like the opposite to Teach First, which is about bringing high-level graduates into the profession, but it's sort of doing the same at the other end of the age range, I suppose. The podcast shines a light on the experience of professionals who are trading the courtroom for the staff room or trading writing of newspaper columns to writing reports. And it touches on topics such as the 100-year life and educational inequality and includes input from educational experts and from young people themselves on the ideas behind pursuing a second career in teaching. And given the alarming figures around teacher recruitment and retention in particular, this is a really welcome movement, I think, because, you know, we need more teachers, especially teachers in their older years. We've got the youngest teaching workforce in the whole of the developed world, as far as I'm aware. So the first episode is called The 100 Year Life, which is about the fact that the majority of young people living in developed countries today are likely to live to be more than 100. I've even heard it said recently that the first 1000 year old person has probably already been born but that makes my head hurt too much, so let's just park that for now. But it's clear that lifespans are getting longer, and it is a sobering thought that my son's grandchildren may well be alive in the 23rd century. This brings up all kinds of questions about how we educate young people, which we don't really want to get into right now. But anyway, Now I'm Grown Up is a fascinating podcast, and you can listen to it with my blessing. Interestingly, Jenny Murray seems to be considering becoming a teacher at the age of 71, which is kind of cool. I really hope she does. Funnily enough, I think Jenny Murray would really like today's show, which features a conversation with four incredible, inspirational women who have taken matters into their own hands in recent years and set up alternative schools, or in one case, an alternative to school, three in England and one in the Dominican Republic. Avid listeners of the Rethinking Education podcast will probably know that the one in the DR is my good friend, co-author and Learning to Learn co-pilot Kate McAllister, who featured in episode nine. And I really recommend you listen to that, by the way, if you haven't done already. My other three guests today are people that I've come to know only very recently as a result of having set up this podcast. They are Kath Pratt, who has set up an alternative school called Soweni down on the cliffs of Cornwall. Hayley Peacock, who has set up a proudly progressive private school called Atelier 21 in Crawley. And Lucy Stevens, who has set up a democratic school in Croydon known as The New School, which is free to attend because it's funded by private philanthropists rather fascinatingly. 
There are links to various articles and websites relating to all of these initiatives in the show notes if you're interested to find out more. Having four guests at once is a bit of a departure from the usual format of the podcast, but I think it's probably kind of obvious why I've decided to do this episode. These four women are a living embodiment of people who aren't just rethinking education, they're actually rebuilding it, they're redoing it now, every day. And each of them are voting with their feet with their own children attending the schools that they have created. As Haley says at one point, it really is very cool, especially if you're an education geek like I am. A quick note before we begin. If you've ever worked in education, you may have noticed that teachers are quite fond of the odd acronym. And as I was editing this episode, I noticed that there were a few acronyms being bandied around and not all of them were defined listeners. I won't go through these now, but should you encounter an acronym in the course of this conversation and you're not sure what it stands for, have a look in the show notes and you may well find it explained in a little mini glossary. Okay, without further ado, on with the show. Okay, deep breath. So, Kath Pratt, Lucy Stevens, Haley Peacock, and Kate McAllister, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thanks for having us, Thank James. you. Thank you for having us. Mm. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. So, this is going to be interesting because I've only ever had one guest at a time previously, and we've gone, I've set the, set the bar high and gone from one to to four people. Um, so this is going to be interesting. It's going to take a slightly different format to, to how we usually organise these conversations. So let's just start with a very brief introduction from each of you, just to introduce yourself to listeners, uh, your name and the school that you are or were involved with um, and where you are in the world, and then we'll go from there. So let's go Kath first. Hi, everyone. Um, my name's Kath Pratt. I uh, live in Cornwall, um, in Perranporth, um, St Magnus area. I'm mum to four boys who are amazing and full of, uh, full of beans. Um, they're a self-directed bunch and they're nine down to two. Um, I have been, well, I am co-founder of Sewenny, um, which means thrive in Cornish. And it's a, um, a learning community space that uh, we're building currently at a wonderful eco park. Um, yeah. And that's kind of where I'm at, really. It's, it's quite an extraordinary journey, which I'm looking forward to telling more about because I haven't really shared it before. So <laughs> mm, we're looking forward to hearing. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Lucy. Um, yeah. Hi. So I'm Lucy Stevens uh, and I'm the founder director and co-head at the moment of uh, the new school which is a democratic school in uh, south london we're actually a croydon school but we're right on the edge of the borough so we're we sort of sit triborough actually with lambeth and lewisham um and our young people come from about six different local authorities which is quite interesting because we've been we're very popular with homeschoolers i guess former homeschoolers <laughs> um so yeah that's me thank you uh Hayley. Hello, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, my name's Hayley Peacock and I'm the founder and head of school of Atelier 21. Uh, we are a through school for children reception years at so age four to eventually we'll be 16 to stay with us and get some uh, exam results at some stage. Um, 
But at the moment, our oldest children are between uh, 12 years old. So we've got our current year sevens will be our oldest year group. And then we've got them all the way down to four. We have 54 children at the moment. We are a fully registered full-time school, uh, both primary and secondary. Um, and we're based in West Sussex, just on the edge of Crawley. And we have parents and families from probably all around a kind of good, almost a sort of 30 to even 40 plus radius all around uh, the area, Sussex, Surrey, Hampshire, East Sussex, West Sussex, etc. Uh, yeah, and that's us. Lovely, thank you. And lastly, Kate. Hello, everyone. I'm Kate McAllister, and I am the founder, director and head, I guess, of The Hive, which is in Dominican Republic. And it's an all-through alternative to school. It's not really a school. Our youngest is three, our eldest is 16, and our students come from very different backgrounds. We have local Dominican children who are on scholarships. We have local international children like my daughter and the people who live in my community who come from other places who work here in Dominican Republic. And then we have world schooling families who are these traveling homeschooling or alternative schooling families who come for multiples of six week sessions. So we kind of run this double program, full-time students who are here all year and the students who visit. And it's bilingual English and Spanish. Mm, thank you. So hopefully it will be obvious to listeners why it is that I have gathered you all together here today, because you all have um, at least one huge thing in common. Um, and uh, three of you, uh, as you know, I've worked with Kate for many years, but the other three of you uh, I, I didn't know until until very recently, until I started this podcast. Some of you I met through the Mighty Network and some sort of through word of mouth. Um, and somebody described this Mighty Network recently as being like a bat signal for like, you know, for innovative educators. And it's just this space for people to, to come together to see one another often for the first time, and just to sort of cross-pollinate ideas and to, to just to see what's out there. And so I'm really interested to, to, to hear more about your stories. And I'm also really interested to hear, like, how many, how many of you are there out there? You know, like, how many people are there doing things like the things that you've been doing recently? So I am really at the beginning of this journey, and I am all ears and eyes wide open. So we're going to go th through each of your stories in turn. So we're going to spend about 20 minutes talking with each of you in turn. And please feel free to question one another as well as me asking questions um, so that we can hear a bit more about each of your individual stories. And then at the end, we'll have a bit more of a sort of a, a general conversation about any themes that have emerged through, through our conversations. So that's the plan. So let's, let's get started. We'll start with you, Kath. Um, so you 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 um, were involved or are involved with this this project Soweni? Um, is that the pronunciation Soweni? That's right, Soweni. Yes. Um, which means thrive in in Cornish. Um, and so, what is it that started this? Oh, you you posted something really lovely recently on the on the Rethinking Education Mighty Network. I don't know if that's where where it started for you, sitting on a beach somewhere. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. Um, Indeed, the, the germ of Sueni sort of started on that beach. Um, I Before I taught in mainstream, I did the Wandsworth skit. Um, and prior to that, I did, did um, an, a master's in anthropology of learning and cognition, which I guess is where everything sort of started. And I've been rethinking education, I think, probably since, since then. 
and um and I moved from from London via sort of South Devon to to the Caribbean and did and taught the IBPYP and um it was at one moment when I was stood on a beach and I had literally like an hour before found out I was pregnant with my first boy and and I was standing there looking out to sea and thinking about the vastness of the world and the universe and how incredible I had this little spark of life um, growing inside me and uh, who was going to join uh, Rich, my husband and I. Um, and it was an amazing kind of uh, expansive thought. And then I sort of looked down and there were these little fish nibbling my toes. And it all sounds quite idyllic, but... I knew they were poisoned, these fish. And I looked inland and I could see the smoke from the huge um, incinerator that we had on Tortola that was just burning the rubbish and, and they were just spewing effluent uh, and raw sewage into the, into the sea. So you couldn't eat the fish, like even the snorkeling was slightly taking a life in your hands. And it, it just felt deeply sad. And I suddenly thought, I'm bringing a child into this world. And it felt like a microcosm of of what we're doing to the planet. And, um, and then I've, I, so I felt very, very kind of um, thoughtful at that point. And how could we bring a child up in this world? And then my mind kind of spun to the, to the children that I'd come from, from London to teach uh, in the Caribbean. And they were so incredible and alight um, with their questions and passion to do something about the plight of the planet and also have agency in their own lives and in their own stories so they had created uh, just the previous week a wonderful um picture of uh, picasso's guernica but they'd kind of done it as a mosaic um and uh, and it kind of illustrated all of the issues that tortola was suffering with with its environmental problems and lack of political will to do anything about it and do anything differently. Um, and I had helped them uh, get in touch with the, the folk in Roadtown who were the, the main um, uh, political uh, lobby groups, I suppose. And we managed to get it framed and put up in the town hall there. And it was all, and it was all to do with them. And it was a really powerful message. Um, uh, and I thought, yeah, this is exactly the sort of these are exactly the sorts of children and sorts of thinkers that I need to somehow enable in back in the UK and we were always planning to come back I thought I need to create that environment that absolutely key environment to enable these children to to bloom in whatever direction they go that that soil that kind of the stuff that we're pouring into the soil needs to be right in order for children to be the best people they can be so when I started Sueni um, I, I came back from the Caribbean um, and I had this burning question in my head of like, what, what if we started from scratch? What if we started a school completely without any of the stuff that we're kind of fed while we're in, in the school and, and, uh, and try something really different? And, um, and also my other burning question was, why are children so incredible? They're just the best learning organisms that we know. And what is it that really drives them and makes them so incredible? And why is it we are systematically removing <laughs> that kind of uh, curiosity and excitement about learning through, through our system? So, um, 
yeah, so the, that was the beginning of Sueni, kind of the actual project, I suppose. And um, and before that, just thinking about me as a child, like I, <laughs> I'm always, I was always a gap through the hedge kind of child. <laughs> I never really liked someone telling me that no, I couldn't go there because that was someone else's land. Uh, I was there was fields just next to where I grew up, and and I was constantly in trouble, kind of because I'd snuck through there trying to spot deer and had sticky weed in my hair and yeah, you know it's a little bit of a, a wild one so it's no surprise I'm trying quietly in my own little way to try and um, do something a bit differently and kind of bust through that hole in the hedge if that makes sense anyway so that's been the beginning of it yeah yeah okay thank you and so you had this it's a very moving um picture that you paint there and although it's obviously quite specific to that, that point of time that you were at, as you were talking about, like you say, with this literally a seed inside you, I think that probably many people can relate to that as parents, that, that you know, like thinking about, you know, like this is this is personal now. <laughs> this is not just about what kind of a school do I want to work in, but what mm-hmm. kind of a world do I want my my kids to, to grow up in and what are the values um, that, that I want to see reflected in the way that they're educated and, and what's the reality and what's possible and so on. Um, and so, so you came back to Cornwall. So, so how did how did Sueni come about? And, and what, what one thing that I'm interested to hear from each of you about is like this, many people have probably thought like, oh, if I ruled the world, if I ran my own school, sort of thing. But you've all you know actually made it happen, and it seems like such a massive thing to do. And so, like, where do you even begin with that? What was, what was the like, practically? What was the first move? <laughs> Uh, I I sort of amassed, scooped up a whole load of families, um, and mostly through sort of orating my <laughs> my passion about uh, what what to do. And actually, I'm going to share with you a little story that I wrote. Um, I pulled out um, for this podcast because I thought, oh my goodness, I wonder if it's still it's still relevant. So in Cornwall, we have a a story called the Magic Ointment. And so bear with me, I'm going to just read this to you because this kind of um, helps start the whole thing rolling. So I wrote this with my son, Lox, who at the time was four. Uh, he's now nine, so this is a, a while ago, but um, it's rather rather sweet. So the magic ointment. Lox had just finished his last Biff, Chip and Kipper school reading book and was feeling unfulfilled. In need of a real adventure, a proper story, something with pirates? A giant, maybe? Just then, he spotted a small brown bottle with the words, see me, tied around the neck on a scrappy ageing label. See me was what his teacher sometimes wrote at the bottom of his spelling test, and the words generally made him shudder. But this was intriguing. The bottle wasn't there a moment ago. He was sure of it. Reaching out, he took the bottle and opened the crumbling cork stopper. A wisp of green smoke, which smelt faintly of damp earth, escaped. He held the bottle up. There was nothing in it. He looked down the neck closely, holding it up to his eye like a telescope. Still nothing. Then, ow! He dropped the bottle, which clattered to the floor and rolled under his bed. He rubbed his right eye and blinked. Standing before him with an amused smirk was a small green creature. See me? It inquired gleefully. Great stuff, that's so any juice. But that was our last drop. What? What? How? Who are you? Stammered Locks. I'm Nan Jizzle the Spriggan, he announced proudly, and I'm on a special mission to find you because we're all in very great trouble. What do you mean? All of us are very worried that you children won't see us anymore because we have run out of Sueni juice, and it takes a whole lot of memories, wisdom and love to make it. 
uh, who's us? Just then a window flew open and a huge wave washed in, soaking locks and Nanjizzle. Locks gasped. Sitting on his bed was a girl with flowing red hair and a kind smile. She flapped her fishy tail gently and held out an old copper kettle. You make it in here, whispered Mavora, the mermaid of Zena. Ask everyone in your village, your parents, your friends, for something that feels important to them. It can be anything, advice, a story, a memory, some piece of wisdom, even a regret. If they hold this flower to their forehead and then put it in with love, we can make more Sewenny juice and your children will be able to see us always if you choose to put some on your eyes. But be quick, we are fading in a mist of tests. Lox took the kettle and ran out of the door. He visited every house he knew and collected many flowers from the smiling villagers, each imbued with something important. He rushed back to Nanjizel and Mavora the mermaid. They beamed at him and started to s stir and sing. Oh goodness, there's a song. Shall I sing it? So when he keep us flowing, flowing and growing. So when he keep us flowing, help us to see magic across the world, the fire deep inside ourselves. So when he keep us flowing, help us to see. There we go. Uh -oh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I scooped up a whole bunch of parents anyway and um giving various talks at the Eden Project and and some places um uh and um and they were broadly and they will happily admit a bunch of kind of anarchists <laughs> uh who were just keen to try something different and and to do something different and we created um a a community it was. It was the. It's the village that um, that we all need, and we had all sorts of parents. Uh, we had musicians. We had doctors. We had uh, face painters. We had teachers, like all who had this kind of like vision to do something um, in a different way. And Cornwall's so wonderful and so full of um, places and magic uh, and natural wonder that it felt like a kind of great place to start. So, so that's what we did, um, and setting up the community was was fun. Um, and then we had the big task of of how we actually build it. And I knew that this was going to be a pilot phase that that I I wanted to sort of see if it worked. Um, and so I looked around for lots of land and there were farms that I talked to. There were um, various plots of plots of land with polytunnels on. And, and we looked for ages to try and find the right spot. And eventually we were very lucky. And, and some parents um, had an acre of land on the Cornish cliffs. And, uh, and so we thought, oh, this is perfect. So um, we, we had some log cabins and we converted a sort of old double garage into a Sort of regio type creative studio um and uh, and we had a huge seven meter teepee as well um and there we did about 18 and uh, we were planning for 18 hours a week um and with the, all the offset stuff we managed to do it through having no more than we had 15 children uh, they were mixed age they were aged four to to eight at that time um and 
we had uh, educated, fantastic IB educators as well, um, and some forest school uh, teachers and, and also primary teachers who were forest school trained as well. Um, and we all trained up, we had to train up because of the Ofsted um, stuff as childminders, which felt strange. Um, and, and that worked actually really well um, as, as a way of doing it. We had all of our policies and procedures um, all absolutely watertight. And uh, Ofsted came, uh, they came three times and they came the first two times. And they said, this is incredible. One actually was welling up saying, this is the future of education. Um, and so we're really happy. This is like, uh, like you know, we're, we're doing this pilot project and it's really working. And we're managing to do everything absolutely the way that we should. Um, and then the third time they came, um, I could tell you about that now. <laughs> or maybe later. But... Um, Basically, we had uh, something shifted in, in the government's kind of rhetoric and narrative around illegal schools. And um, one day, and sadly, it was the day after my father-in-law had died. So it was, it was everything was pretty raw anyway. Um, they came in their blacked out mobile and did, as uh, I think James always refers to, the sort of Dementor thing. Um, and, um, and they said... We shouldn't be doing what we were doing, despite the fact that everything had all been fine previously. Um, and they threatened us with Crown Prosecution Service and, and all of that stuff and said we could carry on, provided we, we dropped down to 15 hours, which was fairly arbitrary. Um, and, and, the, and the kids were really quite intimidated and quite scared. Um, and we did this uh, sort of looking back on it, a fairly comedy routine where the children were really worried and, and, and um, another friend managed to usher them into the, into the house to sort of talk to them and sort of uh, defuse the situation. And, and the rest of the children, sort of Von Trapp style, we, had, we were booked to go to the local retirement home because we used to go there every week um, and go and spend an hour with the residents there. Um, and so Von Trapp style, we were, they were kind of like ushered out <laughs> onto the cliff, cliff path which uh was near where we were and um and they sort of went went for a very long walk <laughs> to the retirement home um and eventually you know we had everything back and they said we hadn't done anything wrong which was great um it took about three months but at that, that time I was very I was about to give birth anyway um so I and this happened in November and I gave birth in early January so we just said, actually, let's just wrap up the pilot now um, and let's just focus on now building it where we want it to be built, um, which is up at this fabulous uh, spot on the cliffs again, overlooking a valley with all of the old mining works and everything. It's just really beautiful and down to the sea as well. So, so that's where I'm focused at the moment is getting that um, up and running again. And there's so much in there that I want to talk about because... All of the learning of the kids and everything was is fantastic. Um, so yeah, that's where that's how we kind of set it up, really, and and uh, <laughs> where it is at the moment. <laughs> okay, and so it's to be continued. So you sort of yeah. having, a, having a pause after this pilot study and licking your wounds from this um, bruising Ofsted experience. And I think that we'll probably come back to talk about Ofsted later on. I know it came up in our pre-chat just a bit earlier. Yeah. 
Um, it's obviously part of the the, re the gritty reality, isn't it, that we face yeah, when we start, totally. when we start a dream like this. Um, and as you say, it does seem like something changed in their thinking um, around illegal schools. Um, there's definitely been a shift in policy, but we'll come on to that. Thank you. Do any of the rest of you have any questions for Kath at this point? I was just going to ask why, what was their thinking about dropping down to 15 hours? How was that going to make any difference to them? Just, just I'm not off. sure. No. It was a completely arbitrary thing. And then mm. we asked to have the report and they said no. And we said, could we put a freedom of information request in for the report? And they said no. <laughs> so actually at that point, we thought, let's not poke the hornet's nest anymore and just, yeah, wind up for the moment. Yeah. yeah, I have come across that before because when I used to work at the Self-Managed Learning College in Brighton, the reason that that's a college and not a school, although the young people there are, are aged sort of 9 to 16, um, is because of the number of hours that they do. And because it's limited to, say, three hours a day, then that's mm -hmm. like, I think there's some legal definition of what constitutes a school somewhere. So I think that that's why that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes. If you've got children uh, of compulsory school age, um, age and you've got five of them um, and you're teaching them, it was 20 hours when we were doing it. I think they've brought it down now to 18. Mm. Yeah. yeah. OK, well, we've got a couple of minutes left in your slot. So maybe do you want to just share with us a little sort of a vignette or like a, a slice of what it was like, like a day in the life of Sirwani when it was when it was uh, firing on all cylinders paint a picture oh, of what it was like when we were rocking and rolling yes yes absolutely so we had um a fabulous community of parents as i said and um we used to do these things called inspiring inquiring sessions um which we shortened to inquiring and that's where the parents would come in and share their skills so we had these wonderful musicians um, and they came in and we'd have children sort of dancing across the lawn with all their violins and and uh, and they did a they were doing a wonderful sort of unit of inquiry to borrow the the IB's um, term uh, on under the earth and uh, they were doing a <laughs> they'd been at the beach hammering like crazy finding all these geodes because where we are we're right on a fault line and they'd found all these incredible crystals um so yeah that had been our previous day's trip was at the beach um hammering away and um and then the musicians came in and they uh started to produce a literal rock song so <laughs> the children wrote it um and then the uh, musicians then helped them record it and help do backing tracks and and all of that sort of thing and the, and the kids were absolutely on fire with the whole thing and I can put it if you like James I can send it to you the rock song we can put it in the show notes lovely but it was uh it was quite extraordinary so so the other things we used to do so they were the inspiring sessions where the parents could bring a skill um it was always quite a challenge because um unschooling the parents was probably the biggest biggest thing um it's shifting in case nodding <laughs> it's shifting that way of like this is what school looks like and they should be doing this and I should be standing over them and checking their work um to inspire them first and then we can we can see where they go and try not to turn everything into a learning opportunity either like they need a lot of unstructured kind of time where they can just play and experiment without growing up saying oh what have you noticed about that 
Um, so that was a challenge for the parents, I think, to kind of just shift their thinking. Um, and uh, oh, where was I going with this? Yeah, so we're doing the inspiring sessions. Yes, yeah, so that was, we tended to do those in the afternoon and the parents would bring an activity and then they'd be quite surprised when the children were kind of like, okay, we're excited about that, this activity for about 10 minutes and then off. <laughs> and then they were off doing something else. And the parents were left there going, but, but, but. <laughs> I was like, no, no, honestly, this is great because you've provided that spark and they'll probably, you know, come round and come back to it and, and bring it into another one of their project cycles or something at some point. Um, so that was interesting. And then in the mornings, we tended to do um, the children's energy tended to be they'd come in and they would literally climb up, up the trees. Like that was that was the first thing they would do. They'd swing out the trees, up the trees, they'd bond. There was quite a lot of energy and a, quite a lot of um, excitement for about the first hour. And then finally, they sort of like come back down and we'd, we'd eat together. And we always made bread together, which was great as well. Um, and then, and then we'd do some slightly more focused stuff um, where we were doing, you know, they were doing some uh, measuring and jumping and we'd sort of bring the, bring the elements of, of maths and literacy and things, but it wasn't so explicit. Um, and then, and then, yeah, and then we'd have lunch and then it was the afternoon. So we kind of, with the inspiring session. So um, we had a kind of lovely kind of energy that just sort of bobbed and flowed and, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was beautiful. The children absolutely loved it. And uh, it really felt like it, it reflected their, their natural kind of energy. And that, again, went to the core of my question of just like, you know, why are these guys so incredible? And what do they need in order to make them so? Um, and it start questioning everything from all of the sort of cyclical energy flows of like, the, the school year starting in September in autumn where things should start to be sort of shutting down and curling up ready for incubation to to you know yeah the school day and why have we got you know why are we getting children sitting down at these points when they really want to be um ex exploding and almost a sort of spring-like um energy so yeah I'm sort of I think the Sewenny year when we get up and running is going to run probably from February until kind of November <laughs> and then maybe the world schooling thing might happen and we'll all have to come to the Dominican Republic for Christmas <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you I mean there are definitely lots of parallels with with what's happening at the, at the hive um with the, following the natural rhythms of, of the, the you know the child's uh day and so on so um yeah. i think we'll see that when we come on to kate well thank you so much for for sharing that i mean it sounds almost right. like ridiculously idyllic <laughs> like you could you would want your kid to be there wouldn't you and, and you can see why these people would want to trust you with their with their with their young people um and thank you also for being the first person to ever sing on the podcast <laughs> hopefully, hopefully not the last although there's no pressure for the rest of you uh, <laughs> bonus points will be awarded if you do though um so thank you for that amazing so let's come on to you Haley. so you decided to set up atelier 21 is this your first venture of this of this nature um yes and no it's the first school I've ever set up but I've spent 12 years running and building a nursery group so I've been working um inspired by the Reggio Media approach inquiry-based learning project-based learning um 
sort of general educational reform and divergent thinking within it, within education and its future for you know quite a long time. And so I, I like to think I've sort of been I've been breeding the school slowly for 10 years, I'd say. Um, and then, you know, and then suddenly it was here and it was it was all about the right time for me and the right time within the business and financially, et cetera, because it's, you know, it takes a lot, not just will, um, particularly when you're 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 jumping all in and, and going and opening a primary and secondary school in one from from day dot. So um when uh um Kath was talking about, you know, a pilot period, I felt quite sort of jealous, like you had sort of time to kind of work out how you do it differently. Whereas us it was like, if you're doing it, you know, you you're doing it and and you damn well better make it work type thing. Um, and that's where, you know, that's where we are now. Has, has to work. Is working. Great. But, you know, always had to work. And, of course, uh, it, interestingly, we got thrown the old COVID side punch, uh, which was brilliant because I signed a 25-year lease on a very large 1,000-square-metre old 19th century building two weeks before COVID hit. Uh, wow. So it was a case of, you know, if I wasn't sure if COVID would make a difference, it's too late now. Uh, we're doing it, whatever. And also, the break clause of that lease doesn't stick in, uh, doesn't kick in for ten years. So I'm I'm am ten years in, whether I like it or not. Um, but you know, but you know, I joke and when because a lot of parents, you know, one of the things they do ask me, and I understand why they ask me, is how financially secure is the school and is it going to be around for a long time if I bring my child here at age five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever. You know, are you still going to be around when they're sixteen for them for you to for them to see their education right the way through? That's part of the appeal for choosing us, um, which I can answer you know very securely because obviously um, the advantage of of having had a, a, you know a successful business for twelve years, which was um, you know already employs a hundred people and you know is 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 kind of a really good base. Then yes, financially we have a safety net, which um, I think in some cases of other you know, alternative or progressive schools that haven't necessarily always lasted the distance. I know that's sometimes been a factor and it was something that, you know, I wasn't going to launch into unless I knew I absolutely had the means to see it through until it was properly wiping its own face. Um, so, yeah, so basically my my sort of story, if you like, is that I started out as a broadcast journalist um, I had three children under four at the time, including twin girls who were born at 24 weeks. So they were very early, very sick for a, a, quite a long time, about the first years of their life they just in and out hospital. Um, and so that kind of cut my broadcasting career quite quite um, to a halt. <laughs> so when you're going for news news jobs and radio jobs and, and, and then you tell them you've got three young children, they look at you like you've got two heads. So I thought, I thought right, okay, I'm a bit done for now. I can't really do this. And I also can't really afford to do this because the childcare just eat up all my salary. Um, and so I thought I'd better do something different. And I was very, very interested in child development and parenting and just the whole world of, of you know, of, of child, of education. It just, as soon as I had my own children, like a lot of people, it just pulled me into this. I was just fascinated about the whole relationship between parenting, education, child development. So I ended up pointing my journalism in that direction. I was writing for some parenting magazines and bits and bobs. I had my own little radio show in Brighton, actually, on a community radio station there uh, for a while, etc. Um, and then, of course, realized I really couldn't carry on down this road. because I had very small children. 
and thought, well, if I run my own nursery, um, you know, I'll have childcare in place. I can run a business, which I always like the idea of. And it will be in an area that I'm really fascinated in. And I just didn't look back. And having absolutely adored my previous career and always thought it'd be what I did till I, you know, till I died, it was really interesting to replace that with something that I just literally never looked back to. So fast forward, you know, 10, 12 years on, 10 years on, I then thought um, my little how did we start and why did we start story um, is, is basically this. So, so my nursery group, you know, we've, we've, we've done quite well. We've won a lot of awards. We've, this year in February, we won UK Nursery Group of the Year. Five years ago, we won UK Nursery of the Year. We've won quite a lot of awards in innovation and blah, blah, blah. blah. So that, that led us to opening a training school which meant we do, um, you know, a fair bit of consultancy for other nursery groups. And uh, we get asked to go out and do lots of lovely speaking at universities and, and quite a lot of international speaking, which is just amazing. has been a huge, you know, benefit of my career and something I've loved. So in 2019, in May 2019, very much around this time, actually, two years ago, I was... Um, I was in Kuala Lumpur doing a, a large, you know, big conference, an international conference, which was which was awesome. And of course, when you get paid to go to Kuala Lumpur, you have a few days holiday on the back of it, obviously. And uh, so I was in a lovely hotel and I was having a, a sunbathe in my little five day trip with my wife who'd come with me. And um, and I was laying on the sunbed and I was just thinking to myself, you know what? Because I had four children by this point, by the way. And they were a lovely, you know, a lovely private school. I'm very lucky. And I thought to myself, this is actually getting ridiculous. I'm now being paid to literally fly around the world. And in the previous two years, I've been to America, um, China twice, you know, blah, blah, whatever. And I thought, okay, I'm actually getting paid to fly around the world on sort of a semi-regular basis now to try and inspire people about educational reform and how things can be done differently and the amazing potential of education through a new lens, blah, blah, blah. And all the money I earn, I'm giving my own children the exact opposite experience. And that was it. That was the light bulb moment for me. It was just like, I can't do it anymore. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I can't have all my energy go into trying to make something better and inspire people for other people's children, whilst I send mine off looking like they work in Canary Wharf in little jackets um, you know, going to be petrified of making a mistake and obsessing about rubbing out the wrong spelling and crying because the teacher, you know, would, wasn't overly, I don't know, knocked out by the piece of writing or whatever. It just, it just all was really starting to bother me. Now, I don't, I don't want that to be inferred in the wrong way because it wasn't that they were having a bad time. They really weren't. It is a lovely school they went to and they had a lovely time. Um, but lovely time probably describes it best. So it, you know, they did. It wasn't, it wasn't dreadful. But the things that I really noted by the time my children, my daughters, my my older daughters, which are twelve, twin twelve year olds now. So at the time they were about ten, and you know they had no capacity or tolerance for thinking in a divergent way, or so, or, or even wanting to think you know, creatively or differently or get into any sort of debate or conversation, which was challenging. It was like, well, why are you doing that? Like, you know, why would you even bother asking me that stupid, weird, slightly quirky question? And they just didn't see the point of it. They also were, as I say, it, their motivation was very, very much extrinsic about pleasing teachers and being good and being rewarded for being good and compliant. And, and you know, they always were at school. And um, and I just thought, you know, this is really wrong. I just I still don't think we've allowed them to just 
unravel and then blossom into who they really are. Um, and so that was really a big driver. And also my youngest daughter was about to start reception in the following September. So I thought, you know what, if I get on with it, if I find a way to get this school that's been brewing in me for 10 years open in 15 months time, I can have my daughter start in year seven. I can have my younger daughter in year in reception. So I literally jumped off the sunbed, said to my wife, right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the school and I'm going to do it next September. At which point she just put her earphones back on, just went, oh God, because <laughs> she's so used to me and my crazy ideas. So, and of course I would just, that from that point, I was just completely obsessed. I tried various means to try and uh, get, you know, the ideas for premises and things. And, I, and it, you know, looking back, they were sort of a bit ridiculous, really. They were never really going to work. And then I was just so lucky. And this, you know, I don't really believe in luck in business um, because I think you make your own luck, absolutely. But there are times when you really are just lucky. Um, and I was lucky. I had an architect who I'd worked on another project with phone me up and say, I know you once talked about a school and I'm not sure if you know, but there's this big building that used to be a school and it's got the right planning use. And it's about 10 minutes from your nurseries. And it's in a, it's in a big park with loads of woodland overlooking a lake. Um, and it's restricted to educational use. So they can't do anything with it unless somebody opens a school there and it's not on the open market. And I just went, what? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, repeat that again. Um, and I pretty much flew there, like I pretty much ran there. I was actually on holiday and I couldn't concentrate on the rest of my holiday, different holiday, lots of holidays, lucky me. So I was on a different holiday and I couldn't concentrate on this holiday with my family because I was so obsessed about wanting to see this building. So I booked the viewing for like practically off the plane. Um, anyway, saw it, thought, I mean, it was a mess, an absolute mess. And it was very daunting because it was so much bigger and older premises than I'd ever taken on before. But I thought, you know what, I can't, I can't turn this down. And in our building, we're very lucky we have this huge internal, beautiful kind of triple height space with a massive kind of glass over sort of area. So it's very, um, it's very sort of arbitorium type thing. And um, and 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 it, and it was a classic piazza. And my dream within you know following Reggio schools and being in Reggio and doing the international study tour about five times was always to have the central heart of a school, which would be a piazza, a place of reciprocity, of dialogue, of exchanging ideas. And, um, you know, and I walked into this central area in this building with this huge light-filled space and 19th century features. And I just thought, wow, if I don't do it here, then when, you know, where am I going to do it? So, um, so that's what we did. And then basically somehow, by hook or by crook, we had a school 15 months later, a primary and secondary school, but my feet did not touch the ground. I mean, they did not touch the ground. The the the, the whole of the summer um, last year before we started in September, I think my business manager and I worked out, had one person with me full time to get it open. And I think we worked out there was about a period of about 10 weeks straight where we did not have, we worked dust till dawn for 10 weeks straight without a single, I mean, I barely saw my four children. It was like moving house every day for 10 weeks. We were exhausted, um, as well as, you know, writing schemes of work and curriculum plans and a million other things. And also trying to get my head around it, you know, shaping up my own vision. I knew skeletally what it looked like. I knew where the values were and what the kind of key pillars of what my school was about. But it was only through like talking about it again and again and again and again and how will it practically work that you really end up sort of really shaping the vision. Um, 
so yeah, that's kind of how I, that's why I got started. And that's how I got started. We've now been running for two terms. We've got 54 children, um, which given COVID, I think for a small private and very unique private school um, is amazing. I think, I think my team and, uh, you know, and I, so sorry, have, um, you know, have really done well. I mean, we, ha- we really have had to, to, to market very, very hard. Um, and yeah, and we're moving in the right direction. I mean, it's absolutely always, like I say to the teachers, you know, it's never going to be built. That's not how this works. What we're doing is an action research project live every day. And action research projects don't really come to, you know, a point of saying, yeah, that's it, done. And it certainly don't do that after two terms. So, you know, there's loads of ragged ends that we're still tying up and little processes that are like, oh, we haven't got a process for that yet. And actually, do we want to do that? Is that is that how our school, we want our school to run? And sometimes it looks exactly like I want it to. And sometimes it looks like the exact opposite. And we have to have a new conversation about, OK, let's just go back to the start. Do you remember when we talked about not wanting to do what other schools do? Let's just remember that, particularly when you're working with people who have been qualified teachers for a very long time and then meshing them with kind of regio practitioners who've been in my organization for many years and they've come over to sort of blend with these very qualified and you know technically experienced teachers it's a very interesting and live place to be Mm. wow that's an incredible story um and so just to go back to that same question that I asked Kath earlier like the first I'm really interested in the seed of these stories and like what what was the like the, you, this moment when you found out about the building is that when it sort of became really concrete and you were like okay this is actually going to happen but like going to visit a building then what happens then do you like fill out a form saying I want to fill out a stuff like that so what happens um, okay so what happens is I mean I'm you know, I'm in a fairly experienced position having done about five, six. I mean, we've moved our nurseries a couple of times. We're building a huge nursery at the moment. We've got another one coming behind that. So I do have a fair amount of, you know, a bit of experience in this this world of leases and whatnot. Um, and basically, yeah, I mean, it's really, really hard work. If I, I got, um, I saw the building in July. Um, I didn't take on a business manager till the literally like the 2nd of January, straight after the new year. And um, when she when she when she took over, you know, we were just in the depths of wrangling the details about the lease. Um, so so really, it sort of goes to solicitors, and you have to actually, in our case, we had to sort of bid to take it on because it's a big building. The rent rank ramps up. Although we, you know, I I believe I negotiated a very good um, situation with them, but you know, it meant that it delayed some of the sort of heavy end of the of the rent that would come later when the school was more established. So, you know, you've got to prove that you can sustain that. And I think if I hadn't have had my other organisation, we wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't have just trusted me with it for sure. Um, so then, yeah, so there's a lot of, lot of wrangling with solicitors. There's a lot of chasing solicitors. There's a lot of back and forths. And what was really kind of slightly comical and farcical about us was that we were given the buildings actually uh, actually on a long lease by the DFE itself so the DFE are actually our landlords which is quite bizarre and then the building itself is owned by the local um borough council so we were given this building but it had had a couple of schools and in it in the past over the years sort of a therapy-based school and something else a long time ago and um and they basically just sort of handed over, but nobody knew how this building worked. And it had 
I mean, it, there were security cameras and CCTV and locking systems and electrical. There were about seven different electrical circuits. And nobody upon nobody could tell us how any of it worked. It was just farcical. So we'd phone them and say, um, have you got any details about, you know, the extremely complicated security system? Nope. Okay. Do you know anything about the plumbing? Nope. Okay, so it was literally just like ridiculous. You know, we we had my business manager. She was amazing. She she literally just had to unpick this building almost wire by wire, pipe by pipe, and work out how the bloody hell this thing works, so that we could then think about making it safe enough and and ready to to have a school in. So, you know, at the same time, was desperately trying to get all of our pre registration paperwork together, hire staff. Of course, you know, really actively promoting uh, for, for, for children because we're not the sort of building that really would have worked if we'd started with five or 10 kids. I mean, they just would have been like swimming around in a mansion. It just wouldn't have felt right. So for it to feel like a community from day one, you know, we needed a good 30, 40 kids there for it to feel proper. So my aim was to get between 30 and a maximum 50. And we started with 44, which was brilliant. We're now 54. We have had some uh, children leave where, it, what you know, that's another conversation, which I think is an interesting area, actually, and why that is. Um, but, yeah, so, so how you do it is you get somebody who's really, really, really practically minded, totally not like me, um, to worry about the building while you go away and worry about making the school part. That's what I did. Yeah, okay. Oh, and, and, you, and you, by the way, you, you dig a big pit in the ground and you throw all your money in it. That's right. Well. Yeah, well, that's that's something that, I mean, funding is going to be a big thing that I think we'll end up talking about, because obviously that's another, the other, we talked about Ofsted, that's probably the other major thing, isn't it, that where we come up against the reality. So so this is a, it's private, it's a private school, isn't it, Atelier? Yeah, private school, privately funded. Um, yeah, we haven't had a helping leg from anybody at all. But as I say, you know, luckily, I, you know, the only way I could do it was on the back of having worked really hard to build my other organization up and and have that as a bit of a safety net but we're you know we're we're very we're, well not very close but over the next year we'll be in a position where we're wiping our own face you know and i might see a salary at some point which would be lovely <laughs> right thank you um so we're almost up for our little slot but we'll, i'm sure we'll talk about some of these ideas later on one of them being that it occurred to me as you were talking that all four of you your own kids have gone to the schools that you've created which i think is a really important thing to to to, to recognise. So we'll maybe come back to that later. Just my last question is: Why the name Atelier Twenty One? What does that mean? Yeah, um, it's so ateliers are creative studio spaces that um, you know it's a French Italian born word, and in the Reggio Emilia approach within the schools in Reggio Emilia and those that um, are inspired by that philosophy around the world, they usually have an ateliers or an atelier within the school and that is a creative studio space so um and it's very much a space to create the new to look and observe and to theorize about how materials behave usually quite creative materials digital materials natural materials uh, and really to just be very open to new possibilities so it's a way of thinking as well as a very physical space within the school uh, and so um, the spirit of the atelier is is really what I wanted to take from that. So my school is essentially called Atelier 21 because it's a creative education fit for the 21st century.
Okay, and so to you, Lucy, um, and the new school in Croydon, is it? What was what was the beginning of your journey um, at the new school? There was a, there was a, a really interesting piece. I think that you came to wider attention recently. There was this piece in the Guardian, um, which you know was was lovely. But from a conversation that I had with you, there was some uh, interesting ways in which the journalists had, had presented the school. So that was how you sort of came to my attention. But what was what was the beginning of this journey for you? And what were you doing before? Um, yeah, so I was I was a teacher in former life. Um, and uh, I just, I just was feeling frustrated with with sort of shoehorning kids through tests, um, and honestly, just really worrying about a lot of them just going on to secondary and and being a really you know uh, finding themselves in a massive great uh, organisation of sort of thousand kids when they come from a very small relational uh, thirty kids in the class environment. Um, so I left with the idea that I was going to set up a, a sort of a charity around the school almost a way of supporting those kids that were the, the square pegs honestly around holes but also the ones that you know their, their skills and interests just lie, lay in different area um and uh you know at that kind of upper end of primary the focus just becomes so much just on english and maths um so that's what I did. And I went to the Prince's Trust to get a bit more experience in charities and how they run and ended up actually staying there and working on one of some of their national projects. Um, and I think that's what, uh, that's what changed my direction in a way, because working with young people, not in education, training, employment and NEAT at the, at the kind of upper age bracket, 14 to 16 year olds. I think it was really clear to me, you know, how hard it is to re-engage them, how hard it is to find something that they're really interested in because they've been outside of a system for so long. Um, and so I actually just thought, I, I don't want that idea is, is kind of passed now. And, and so I actually had a complete career change, went back to university, retrained as a nutritional therapist and, um, and and actually did actually a little bit like CAF, but did a master's in um, well similar to a master's in in evolutionary biology. Um, well, it's actually called psychoneuroimmunology if you want the longer version. Yeah. Um, but I think what that really um, uh, helped me to see is is the kind of what we come into the world expecting in terms of our physiology, in terms of our attachment, in terms of that relational aspect. Um, and and that care and nurture that shapes brains and literally shapes who we are so from that I kind of went into clinic work thinking like working with kind of children and and younger children much younger children and parents and but actually I wasn't a dietitian so I didn't work inside the NHS and then in private practice that's still it was great but it still wasn't quite where I was wanting you know, to, to, to work. Um, but then I had my own kids and thought, oh, and you know, what do I do now? Like, do, you know, do I put them back into the system that I left that I wasn't happy teaching in? Um, so I looked around for ages at different nurseries, um, like Montessori type ones, more like, um, Haley's, uh, Reggio style. And actually what really struck me the most was, um, behavior policies and, and that, I think, led me down the homeschooling route because I thought, actually, you know, there's some amazing settings, doing brilliant things. But for me, having 
a behavior policy that just seems so counter to young child's development, you know, rain clouds because you can't sit with your legs crossed at three or four, um, you know, things like that, that just, it didn't work in my head. Um, and from, from kind of, yeah, the more relational side, I suppose. Um, and so I thought, actually, is there a school system that I would put them into? What would I be happy with? And, and then also in terms of kind of more experiential style, style learning. So I spent a number of years whilst my uh, oldest was young um, researching different school systems through Reggio, Steiner, Montessori. And when I got to democratic education, that's when I really thought this speaks to me in, in, in terms of um, the agency of young people and how I want to relate to my children um, and, and uh, how I want to work collaboratively with them as, as an adult, but actually with... Um, understanding their needs and what they're communicating to me and and having you know supporting their autonomy in that and I think you know democratic settings look so vastly different it's really really hard to make kind of general comparisons but the two kind of main facets of a democratic setting are usually young people having much more of a voice in in how the school is run and the structures um, and more of a choice in 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 their education um but then uh you know all alternative settings naturally at the moment in the UK end up being fee paying. Um, and I thought, you know, that's not what I wanted at the time. And, and what struck me was that there was these so many of these amazing settings doing amazing things. And yet so little outcomes in terms of something that could challenge the mainstream that could say, you know what, this could work as well. Um, not necessarily instead of, you know, I just, I think the element of what we call choice in the UK isn't really choice in terms of education. Um, so I thought, well, actually, in order to, to challenge that and in order to say, OK, there are alternatives that do work for all young people. I had to create a setting that included all young people um, and therefore it had to be non fee paying. So there came my first hurdle, because obviously in the UK, it's two school systems, one the parents pay and one the state pays. And obviously if the state pays, you do it the state's way. Um, so I thought there's got to be that middle ground. You know, what, what if, that it was what I kept asking myself, what if there was a different way? What if there was a way of financing a school? Um, and so I spent a long time looking at um, social impact bonds, commissioning models um, and things like that. And actually, there is a school that has been commissioned uh, like that and in the UK. And there are a number of projects, similar, not schools, but other mechanisms, financing models. Um, and so that's where I started, actually. So, you know, like Hayley, the building was the first issue. I spent probably two and a half years trying to find a suitable building. Um, and then again, like Hayley, we just got really lucky. And, um, you know, there was a fabulous little project, a bit like um, CAFs, using a couple of rooms in an old school. And the school had been a school um, by um, a convent. And the sister was a bit burned, I think, by that experience. Um, I hope my internet is going to be stable. It just told me it wasn't going to be, but we'll see. Yeah, it's, it's, ha it's hanging in there just... It's hanging in there. Good. Um, so that's where, so we went to, I went to speak to her and I told her all about my idea for a school. And bizarrely, this little project, well, probably not bizarrely, but this project that was there had gifted the sister Paolo uh, Freire's book. And it was sat on her desk when I went in and I thought, that's a sign. <laughs> that's the pedagogy of the oppressed. 
yeah sitting on she's she's nearly 80 this this catholic nun and it was just sat on her desk and i thought so i thought right here we go i'm going to tell you everything about this school <laughs> um and yeah she she was like okay i was she was going to turn it into a business center and she agreed and she, you know i said we've got a year's oh currently we've got a year's worth of funding and she said okay we'll do it on a rolling a rolling lease so that's what we took it based on um but yeah amazing i think i think we have a question from Haley. yeah i mean i lucy i've always just been i mean we met early on when you were about to yeah. you were kind of doing you know pitching to parents and we pitched up to see what it looked like uh you were a few months ahead of us blah 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 and it was a pleasure um but you know i i literally i don't know how you cope with the pressure of the funding and finding the funding i mean how are you doing that and how not just how are you physically getting the money in but how are you going about like that constant fear of will we have enough like and then that the impact on what that would do if you didn't and all those families that you know would obviously be naturally disappointed and teachers with wages um you know that fascinates me I mean it's incredible and it's really brave and it's brilliant it's brilliant what you're doing absolutely brilliant thank you yeah I mean that is a massive stress everything about this is is very stressful um and wonderful and crazy all at the same time but yeah I mean we've just been very open with everybody from the beginning you know all of our young people uh, and parents and teachers all knew the funding situation um and and accept the place based on 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 knowing that that is is the case you know we have had a number of people turn down an offer of a place because of that reason you know because they're making a choice of moving their child to a different school um but we're hugely oversubscribed like hugely we we have a waiting list of over 150 kids um and i think that is interesting in itself the other thing that's probably interesting is that we nearly 70% of our current intake were formerly homeschooled and I think homeschoolers obviously then have that as a as as backup so they are actually then okay to say okay yeah I'll try that for a year and if a year is all I get then a year is all I get so I think that that does help um but yeah it's challenging and it makes it really hard I think for staff as well um but you know all of our staff were willing to take a, a a risk again on on something that gave them an opportunity to to reprofessionalize themselves i think you know remember why they went into teaching um and you know hats off to them that they, they probably their workload is no is exactly the same or worse because it's a brand new school um but yeah, and, and I think then I suppose you were just asking about the actual funder. Again, we just got really, really lucky. We've just found somebody that who just likes the idea of challenging the, the fact that schools currently are only funded in two ways, you know, parents or, or the state, um, because of the potential to open up education by doing so. Um, and but yeah, I mean, we've got our second year's funding. Um, and we've got three fundraisers who, we, who I work with, one of whom works in public sector. You know, his, his whole career is in um, uh, outcome commissioning models. Um, we work closely with uh, all of our LAs that are near us, um, Department of Culture and Media, Media uh, 
was the other one sport <laughs> um and you know big issue invest in some of the bigger bigger um outcome funders so we'll see watch this space <laughs> yeah thank you so could, please could you just explain a little bit so you mainly got this like these like there are philanthropic uh, organizations or individuals who have donated mainly um to, to to this school and it's interesting that like the, the there's a lot of money out there in the world and there are a lot of philanthropic individuals and organizations who are interested in, in doing things differently. And it's fascinating that you've gone down this route because most people wouldn't think that that was even an option. And this idea that you just mentioned, social outcomes commissioning, is something that was certainly news to me. And I understand that this is how this other, this other school up in Doncaster operates. Please, can you explain a little bit about what that is and how it works? Mm. Yeah, I mean, they've kind of, um, they're on a different blended funding model at the moment. And they, they've gone from an independent school to an AP, actually, at the moment. Um, but yeah, so basically, it's just a triangle. So um, the local authority is interested in, um, you know, a particular project, whether it's around mental health or is it around education um and interested in outcomes related to that so um and and then you just put a rate card to those outcomes so for example school a to c gcse results it might be attendance figures it might be progress against personal learning plan um and, you know, if you hit the outcomes that are pre-agreed at the beginning of the contract, the local authority will pay. But the initial investment comes from an investor. So you, that's the third spoke of the triangle, I suppose, um, that says, OK, I'll do the due diligence. I'm happy to take the risk on this project, organisation, whatever. And if they hit the outcomes that the local authority want, the local authority pay us back. So there's no risk for the local authority um, in it you know they get the commissioned model that they want it might be that they're interested in a particular cohort you know at risk young people you know we've got 31 percent free school meals our additional needs probably are nearly nearing 30 percent um so yeah mm, thank you um okay so may, may, maybe we'll come back to the funding thing later on but just in the last couple of minutes in your section can i ask you about the democratic element of of the new school why is it that you were particularly mm. interested in a democratic model and can you give listeners a flavor of what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis yeah um so uh one way that uh, we work to challenge the system you know what's really interesting for me is a bit like Reggio has done in Italy you know what what are the conditions that you can create that allow a system to sit alongside a mainstream system and operate effectively you know and 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 in and one thing that we need in the UK to do that is a way of holding schools accountable to some sort of outcomes framework currently it's standardized test outcome framework um particularly so we've built an alternative outcomes framework so we look at um uh, a broader range of measures so self-efficacy self-esteem educational engagement life satisfaction um obviously academic attainment is implicit within that as well but it's not the main steer of the measurement and i think that is kind of a crucial difference um, and the overall outcome that we're looking for is young people having a strong sense of personal agency when they leave our school. And in order to have agency, you need to have a voice. Um, and so the way we operate is through socio uh, sociocratic model, sociocracy. Um, so we work in circles. So operationally, we have um, 
we have out you know the operational bits of the school assessment curriculum you know whatever that whatever they are um and staff um opt into whichever areas that they're interested in but in not opting into a particular circle you're accepting that you that people will make decisions for you within that area so if you want decisions not made for you or you're happy that you know you join it or you're happy that someone represents your voice in that circle and that's the same for young people so teachers represent their class voice in our circles and we also have young people circles um so they um uh, have their own say in areas of the school that they're particularly interested in and we also have whole school time to connect um you know where we can bring things that are um important for everybody um to have a say really interesting thank you very much does anybody else have any questions for lucy before we move on i would i don't i don't know if it's necessarily a question for now but are one of our biggest challenges and we you know we're we're quite similar to the model that lucy's put together a lot of the things she's saying, you know, resonate with how things work at my school as well. But the big difference is, is that her school is free. And that, you know, that is a big, big difference. It, it changes it changes absolutely everything. Um, and one of the, it's, a, it's, it's almost like a slight danger. I'm not really sure I want to go here, but then I sort of can't help myself at the same time. Um, our biggest challenge at the moment is finding the balance and, and where, the finding the balance with working with families with children where school hasn't worked out very well before and where they don't um, necessarily haven't thrived within the mainstream system, whether that be private or state funded um, and children with you know specific needs. And that is a that has become a huge part of our narrative. Um, it's become part of our day to day dialogue. And we are taking quite a radically unpopular route to how we manage it, um, which means we are going to become extremely selective about it. Um, we have already begun to do so. Um, and it's, you know, it's at the point where, you know, I'm having parents crying down the phone because... I know that my school can't give their child what they need. They think it can. I know it can't. Um, and it's really challenging because on the one side of things, I absolutely know what we're doing is the right decision. And I know that it's protecting my community. It's also protecting those children from a breakdown in placement. Um, but then on the other side of things, you know, we have ex-parents where I've done my learning from who, you know, are, who are sort of, we're getting bashed we're getting battered from both sides we're getting battered if we don't take children and then you know saying that we're not inclusive and all the rest of it which we absolutely are we have um you know we have lots of uh, children with um different needs light to moderate needs in our school who are absolutely thriving beyond the expectations of their parents some of which weren't, weren't in school for two years and they you just cannot believe the transformation and nor can we so we are absolutely inclusive but you have to think of the vision. And I just want to know how Lucy's finding that, because I would imagine what I've learned is that the homeschool community is, is largely actually made up of children who are homeschooled, not through choice. And therefore, how is that faring and how's that affecting the development of her vision? Um, and is it being disruptive? Because sometimes it can work beautifully and sometimes it can be very disruptive. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I totally hear you, Hayley. It is very disruptive. <laughs> um, we have hugely challenging children with real levels of trauma. Um, we have a lot of child protection cases. We have um, young people that uh, really struggle to engage in any form of learning because um, because of that. And uh, but that. Whilst that takes up a huge amount of time, it takes up a lot of resource, it's also part of the relational model that we're building, um, you know, because it's, you know, for us, our model won't work unless we can show that actually it works for all children. Yeah. Um, because yeah. it, we want it to be <clears throat> an alternative that can sit in the system. So yeah. for us, it's about how we, how we enable those young people and how we connect with them. And yes, our pastoral support resource is vital, um, but it's also such a massive learning curve for all of the young people because you could go down that route and say, okay, this disruption disrupts everyone's learning. Or you can go down the route and say, how young people learn to accept everyone's strengths and weaknesses and adjust and adapt themselves and have their strengths and weaknesses recognized and adapted and, and adapt in in response that amount of learning is so huge and that's what we're seeing more and more is that ability to um empathize and recognize and 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 uh understand difference and so yeah it's it's all in all in everything that you said, but it's I think it is actually part of the vision for us. Yeah. I mean it's it's part of the vision, you know, for us too. And I have to say that I was I was quite scared that, you know, it sounds very um bit clunky, but I've been warned so much that if you start a progressive school, you will, you know, you will um, have a lot of you know applications from children where school hasn't worked out very well, uh, and you'll have to be very aware of that. And you know, lots of people gave me lots of whispered conversations about it. You must be careful, must be careful. And I was sort of like, well, you know what? We're all about love and inclusivity and blah blah blah. So started off with the absolute best intentions. Um, and actually, what I what I, but also a bit kind of frightened about what people had said. And I have to say, I didn't see it in myself, but. The biggest joy that I've had is being part of, being a really important part of the huge change in childhood for some of the people in our community. I mean, literally, it's changed their childhood. And that has brought me so much joy, I, you know, and it's, so I'm, it's really, really tough because I want to say yes to everyone. <laughs> mm. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Were you going to add something there, Kate? Um, just because yesterday that was our that was our little circle time. So we have 40 children, all in different ages, and something had shifted this session. Um, there were we had some relational issues going on with kids, and there was some meanness going around. And I and I had my staff meeting the night before, and we all sat and said, "Yeah, it doesn't feel the same." And I said, "Then we stop. We stop right now because everything that we want to do." kind of, you know that Maya Angelou quote, people will forget what you said and they will forget what you did, but they will never forget the way you made them feel. And I said, the hive is there so that everybody who comes feels safe and that they feel welcome 
and that they feel that they have a space to express themselves and become whoever it is they feel like they want to be at the moment. And that's not happening now. Something's changed. So we need to go back to that. That has mm -hmm. to be the most important thing is how everybody feels when we're together. And so sometimes the learning outcomes, the knowledge that's being collected has to take a back seat so that those relationships can grow. And it's really hard to find the balance. So it's fascinating for me to sit and listen to you two saying, this is the challenge. This is yeah. where the challenge is. The challenge is not necessarily where I thought it was going to be. It's in these relationships and it's in the balance between how we learn and what we learn and what we prioritize and how we prioritize it. And yeah, it's fascinating. I'm glad that we're all here together having this conversation. Thank you. <laughs> all right. I'm really quite in awe of all of you. I feel very privileged to be able to have this conversation with you and to bring your stories to to wider attention. Um, okay, so so let's come on to Kate, and then we'll maybe pick up this conversation again in a moment. So so if anyone has uh, has listened to the previous episode of the podcast with Kate, we had a long conversation about the journey that pretty much led you up to the point where you were about to open the hive like the following week or something. Um, but if people haven't heard that, can you just give a very brief version of that story about how, why it is that you came to be in the Dominican Republic? Why it is that you set up this school or this alternative to school there? And then I'd really <laughs> like to hear about what's been happening since then and what what day to day life is like in the Hive. Sure. So um, I've been interested in education. I've been a teacher for about twenty years. Started off as a languages teacher. Um, then I got into uh, learning skills and all of those kind of whole child approaches to learning and spent a long time working with James. And so for a while, I was a, mostly a year seven teacher and I taught French, Spanish, PE, English and a dash of humanities. And I was running around from like history to PE to French to Spanish and thinking this is ridiculous. How can anybody function like this? How can the children function like this? Why school like this? One day, when I have more time, I am going to redesign school because this is ridiculous and it doesn't work. And it was just kind of in the back of my head, ticking round for probably 10 or 15 years. You know, that, like James said, if I ruled the world, if I was in charge, what would I do differently? What if, the same as the rest of you, what if it wasn't like this? What if... All these things that are in my way were not in my way anymore. What if all the rocks were out of my pockets and I could do whatever I wanted? Um, and I never intended to open a school. My intention, I, I basically bought myself out of my life about just over a year ago. Um, I was working with James. We'd set up a consultancy. I was traveling. Things were going really well. I was working with fascinating educators. And it was taking me away from my child. And it was taking me away from my home and it was taking me away from the things that I wanted to be doing. And I thought, this isn't working. This, this, this model that I've designed for myself isn't how I want it to be. What do I want my life to look like? What do I want my life to feel like? What do I want my relationship with my daughter to be like and my son? Um, so I sold everything and I headed off on one big learning journey. And because I've work democratically with my daughter. I wanted to go to Goa and I wanted to go and visit um, 
one of Sagatra Mitra's soul-inspired schools that's run by a lady called Shilpa Mehta in Goa. And my daughter wanted to go to New York. And because we've always made our family decisions together, we went to New York and I still haven't made it to Goa. And after New York, we came to Dominican Republic and I came here to meet somebody else who was setting up a world school. I wanted to understand the alternatives to education because I'd always been in mainstream raised mainstream, taught mainstream. Mainstream was all I knew until I discovered that there were all of these alternative ways to do education, but I didn't know them well enough and I hadn't experienced them. So I set off on this journey to experience alternative models of education and to meet the people who open these schools and the parents who send their kids there to find out if that's what I wanted for my family. Um, and then COVID came and the school I came to visit shut down and everybody flew back home because it was a pop-up world school. It was a temporary school that was going to travel. And I was stuck here. Um, and it was a rather lovely place to get stuck, so I wasn't worried. Um, and I made a community here of other parents um, with children. And we got to talking. They were talking about what can we do? How can we, how can we educate our children in what's going to probably be a year of them being out of school? And I was like, shut up, Kate, don't say anything. Don't say a word. Don't tell them that what you've been doing for the last five years is opening schools. Because I had been also on the side, an I opened an organization that does these little pop-up schools for refugees or for excluded communities. Um, and I'd been doing that for a while. And I thought, don't you don't want to do this here. This is about you. This is about your learning this is your time, you've sold your house, you've bought yourself all this free time to do yoga and become expansive and study Ayurveda. Shut up, woman. <laughs> um, and of course I didn't shut up. There were 11 children when we started. We started in, in a yoga shala in a local hotel and then word went round and it got bigger. And even though it was in a pandemic and we had to be really careful and everything was you know, quite difficult, it grew and then, um, Again, it was the building. Somebody said, you know, there's that building over there that's just would be perfect. And I went and I walked in and it just spoke to me. Um, and so and so I bought it just like that. Um, and it started. And now we, we opened in January. So it was a very steep learning curve. Um, because I didn't have a business manager and I didn't speak Spanish very well when I got here. Um, and, and, and it's grown organically for, with this community and we've gradually included more communities into, into our cohort. We've got 40 children now. Um, and that's, that's where it started, really. I suppose what happened, I, I'd gone on this journey to meet other people, to find the thing that I was looking for and being made to sit still in the pandemic and not be allowed to move made me realize that I could spend the rest of forever traveling around the world looking for all of these people. What if I stick my flag in the ground? What if I'm brave? What if I send up the bat signal and see who comes? Um, and I didn't really believe that anybody would come. I but I thought, why not, Kate? If not now, when? Like, how are you, how, why not? It's the middle of a pandemic, just do it, be brave. Um, 
so I did. And people are coming. And the most fascinating people are coming. And it's really, really lovely. Um, and I'm learning a huge amount about, oh gosh, everything about running a business, about opening a school, about models for education, about assessment tools, um, about people and about what they need, about finding balance, because it's really hard. Um, and it's brought me to here and it's brought me to conversations with you three. Um, and I'm going to learn a huge amount from being here talking to you. Um, so, the, yeah, that's where it started. It's, it wasn't deliberate. It was a very accidental. Um, that idea that had been on in the back of my head for a long time just came to the front. It was time. It was time for it to be born. It was time for me to be brave. It was time for me to nail my colours to the mast. It was time. And so it's here. And I suppose that's quite a lovely thing for me to be listening to these other women saying it was an idea that needed to be born. And we've all kind of used that yeah. analogy a little bit. We've talked about our children and we've talked about building the world that we want for them. Um, and I always used to be a bit embarrassed about those romantic notions that I had. I felt that they were romantic and naive and I wasn't allowed to express them. And so now being able to express them alongside other women who not only brave enough to say it, but brave enough to do it. Um, it's quite, quite a big thing. It's quite um, cool, isn't it? It's quite, it is it's quite, quite cool. cool. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. It really is. And the fact that you're all women has not escaped my attention. Um, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll look at that. I mean, I know that this is a small sample size. I've studied social science. I know that, you know, you can't draw any firm conclusions from that. But there is an interesting aspect there, which I think might be might be interesting to explore. Um, but just let's stay on the hive for a moment. So I think because the other three schools are based in the UK, I think there is there are more sort of restrictions around what you can and can't do. You know, we've talked about Ofsted and and following the national curriculum, for example. And I think that the hive is probably a bit more far out. Maybe maybe there's, there's, so any was like halfway to the hive. It seems. Um, but so so you, you describe the hive not as an alternative school but an alternative to school. Can you explain what that is and, and yeah, what that, happens with the kids on a day to day basis? And that's kind of happened naturally as well. So the website is thehive.school, and it was called the Hive School in the beginning. But I think that there are there's more negativity attached to the word school than I realised, and. The, there's the unschooling movement and the de-schooling movement, and there's something about being schooled. Um, and so we're moving away from the name school. But, it, I mean, it's you also need to use the word school because that's the word that everybody uses when you think about a collection of children in the same place at the same time learning. That's a school. So, so we're an alternative to school. It's a place where we can come and all be in collectivity learning together. Um, but it's not a school. So there are not desks and there are not teachers at the front and all of those things that feel like school that we don't like aren't there. Hayley. Oh, I just want wanted to, can you just explain then, you know, if you're not, you're not a school in the, the word, in the way that we all understand the word, you know, what are you? Are you a homeschool group? Are you, how many hours are children coming for? Are they coming five days a week? Are they, are they coming flexibly? I just want to get the shape of what the hive is, really. 
Well, that's the thing. It's 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 in development, so it's taking its own form at the moment. It's a hive, really, rather than a school. So the children come from eight thirty in the morning and they stay till two thirty, and then in the after, and then from two thirty till four ish, and um, they do clubs. So it's eight thirty till four. Um, we have snack time, we have lunch time, we have learning time, we have adults, we have children, uh, we have dogs. We have fruit trees. We have lots of the things that you would expect to find in a learning with a chicken coop. Um, all of the, lots of the things that you would expect to find in a school. Like if you, if you dropped in from another planet, you would go, okay, the closest thing that I know this looks like is a school, but it's not because it's demographic, because the children have agency, because we don't have a predefined curriculum. We design it as we go along, depending on who we have and what we want to learn and what, what what our needs are that we need to meet. So there's so much about it that is not school, that it can't really be a school. But I haven't yet found an alternative description that I'm comfortable with. So it's the hive. And do you have a regulating, like, do you, because you can't, I mean, you'll be aware that you can't, you can't start a school like this in the UK in the way you're describing, not a full-time school. You can do what Kath is doing, absolutely. You can register as a as basically under the childminding section of uh, the regulation, and then you can go and do things in a really self-directed way, and that's fantastic for a limited amount of hours a week. But you can't run a full school the, in the way you're describing. No. So, so, here, so do you I have mean, a, is it, is there somebody governing how or what you do? Or is it literally as beautiful as you can just go for it and do what you like, which is how we'd all love to well, do it. So we went and had a lovely chat with the mayor about what we were doing beforehand. And it's, uh, so officially we are a, a, a centro educativo. We're an edu an educational center. And we're going to be registered as a, as a tourist tourism company as well because we bring so many families into the region. So it's so I, it's a real blend of many different things, almost like a summer camp, but it runs all year. Yeah. Um, or higher education or adult ed, but it's during the day. And it's kind of mixing together all of those, um, all of those solutions that go around the outside of school. So, so for a community, when school has broken down, when you've, you've, you've either had to leave as a child or you've been spat out at the far end of it, underprepared and undereducated, all of those other things that pop up around the outside to meet those needs, that's kind of how we work, but we do it during the day, which is why I'm calling it an alternative to school, because it's not a school. It's all of those alternative solutions that do work for people and also work for, for children who, who can stay in mainstream. They just work, seem to work better. <laughs> like the alternatives to mainstream education appear to work better for everybody. So I'm still not sure why we haven't tipped over to using those methodologies in mainstream more. This, this is a, a huge, uh, apologies if I'm stealing other people's airtime, do just put me in my place. This is a huge big deal for me. I, I, I am becoming very increasingly frustrated that um, what we should be talking about is, you know, I almost want to redefine this word progressive because progressive is not progressive. Progressive is 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 just alter. It's just banded in with alternative for children 
it's like you know for me our school is trying to present school we call our school a revolutionary response to school not a revolutionary approach to school and so it's a response to the the, the what I what I feel is the issue of wanting to educate in a very holistic way where the learning experience is joyful but it's also connected relevant meaningful and purposeful to other learning because if you think about the experience of a child from five years old up to 18 going to school every day and literally going from maths and now we're doing Judaism and now we're doing mountains and now we're doing photosynthesis and now we're back to Judaism and now we're doing Spanish and now we're doing... I mean, it's just, it's kind of mental when you think about putting them through that for, for 18, you know, 13 years. And then we wonder why they're the most demotivated about learning they've ever been at the end of that when they started at four or five years old, the most motivated and the, with the most sense of curiosity and creativity and agency and ideas and theory making and you know just all this brilliant stuff and then by the end of it like my son who's going to get amazing results lucky him he's got you know he's got the sort of natural ability came to me at 16 years old and said you know 15 years old sorry and said I'm literally done I, I cannot take any more even those at the best school are very very privileged lovely lovely schools very lucky and you know came to 15 and said genuinely mum at 16 can I leave school I don't want to go into any sort of higher education of which I coughed and said well after a hundred grand of investment absolutely not um and sort of you know firmly put him in his place and said um yeah I don't think that's gonna happen but you know I haven't worked my my life off to pay for you to then leave at 16. However the bigger question is not you know it's not about whether he leaves it's why does he want to why does he want to at 16 on the very, you know, on, the, on that lovely sweet spot edge of adulthood say, I literally, I don't want to learn anymore at that point. I mean, that is frightening. So I am going somewhere with this. My point is that, you know, developing alternatives in education, progression in education, which is what it should be given it's called, you know, we call them progressive schools. You know, I am I am really rocked and deeply sort of discombobulated by the cold hard truth that progressive and alternative schools are now seen as just places for children where it doesn't work out in mainstream. Because actually there is a huge amount of people, and you know, our community is full of them, where they're not coming to us because their children it isn't working out. They're coming just because they really believe in the idea of developing children's habits of mind, their characters, you know, their personal responsibility, their sense of agency and all the juicy stuff we all believe in. We They really see that in living in a 21st century adult world, you absolutely carve out a better life that is lived well by having those in your toolkit. And they mm -hmm. are not up front and centre in the mainstream sector or in the private school sector, where it is high stakes testing and competitive. Yes, they might get really good GCSEs, but what I say to parents is, don't be worrying about whether they're going to go to university. Worry about how boring they'll be at the interview. Because in a future where higher education is so accessible, you know, they're going to, the, the playing field is bigger than ever. They're competing against more people than ever that will have you know, higher education, they'll have angles, they'll have degrees, you know, you can do a degree in fish and chips these days. So really, what are, you know, future companies, future employees, people are going to give employers, people are going to give these young people their first step on the ladder to, 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 to their future. 
you know, what are they looking for? Well, they're looking for somebody who's going to be different, who's going to have character, who's going to have passion, who's developed their own stuff. You know, my son taught himself how to trade in the stock market at 14 from his bedroom for six months, had no idea what he was doing, and then just turned around one day and said, by the way, I've taught myself to do this. Can I open a, an account in your name as an alias? And I said, yes. And within three months, I was asking to invest. He was making so much money. You know, it is absolutely ridiculous. The school no, no, I have got no idea that he, he's got this, these skills. And I, 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 all I'm getting to is I'm, I'm frustrated because I don't want the conversation to always be about you know, alternatives being for the children where it's not working. We should be providing the alternative because it's the damn right thing to do for everybody. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Well said. Right. Yeah, Let's go I agree. And and the, only, the only way I knew how to do it was to, to deliberately try to bring three very different types of... So a lot of the work I've been doing is bringing communities who wouldn't normally meet and get along well together to learn together to kind of create those relationships so refugees and host communities um homeless people and, and where they live and getting them to work together so that those relationships are built and that kind of gave me the idea because it's hard that work is really challenging and the challenge isn't where you think it's going to be always because you think you know good-hearted people are coming in to work with people who are having a hard time and they're gonna and it's culturally work, working with people who are culturally so so different from you is very challenging so well how how are we going to get over this on a grand enough scale so that we can understand one another better because it all seems to boil down to me that we don't understand ourselves well enough and we don't understand each other well enough and we don't understand what we can do to make a difference in our own lives so i want to build a school that teaches children how to do that with children who are very different from they are. So we have um, young children, we have children who are Dominican, who are here, who live up in the Loma, they don't have electricity, they don't have running water, they haven't had education before, a lot of them are functionally illiterate. And then we have these world schooling children whose parents can afford to sail around the world on a yacht year after year, dipping in and out of the green school in Bali or the da 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 da, wherever. Um, so we've got the most privileged and the least privileged children on the planet together in the same place at the same time with kids like mine who sit somewhere in the middle and they're working on the sustainable development. All of the curriculum is built around the sustainable development goals. So they are learning what they care about and they are learning how to respond to what they care about and they are learning how to have either a uh, effective response or an ineffective response and why. So when they get to that interview when they're 18, they know what they're passionate about. They can talk from experience. They can articulate everything about why something is important from what it feels like to be the person who's providing the solution to what it feels like to be the person receiving the solution because they understand both mm ends of that entire journey like we don't have time to keep tinkering around the outside of this like as Greta Thunberg says like your house is on fire why aren't you doing anything mm -hmm. and so I kind of want the hive to be a place where you can come and roll your sleeves up and really get to the root of what the big issues are in the world um, and have a go at fixing them and and develop a toolkit for a toolkit for living your life in a way 
that means that you get to be the difference, that you get to recognize what's not quite right in your own life and do something about it. And you can recognize where other people are struggling and do something about it and where the planet mm. needs support and do something about it. And I, I'm getting quite loud. So obviously I'm very passionate about this. No, it's, um, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. But it that's brilliant. what it's for. That's what the heart, that's its why. It's safe to say that we've that we've slipped into the wider conversation, which is great. So let's go to Kath and then Lucy. Thanks, James. Yeah, I, I can I just say what a privilege it is to be on this podcast right now because this is the conversation that I just really feel very happy to be a part of. Um, I've been thinking a lot about exactly this and the kind of outcome-oriented, high-stakes testing that we have going on in the UK and how something like Sueni could could happen if we had that kind of trickle down approach from whatever outcome it is that education is supposed to give us so if we took high stakes testing out of the equation completely and this was my big question um what would it look like then to come out of education what would we have and um, I've been thinking about uh, rethinking assessment folk um, have been uh, producing reports and things, and they've been looking at the Mastery Transcript Consortium and the IB Learner Profile, which talks about sort of dispositions. And I know Guy Claxton talks about this and his learning river of knowledge on top, and then um, dispositions of the kind of big fish that run along the bottom of the river, the kind of stuff that it's really the really meaty bits. Um, that we see in children um, developing over time. And um, I'm thinking, how can we capture that? How can we capture that journey from birth to 18 and beyond? Like that's your child, your child's education kind of in a beautiful, some kind of beautiful um, fractal flower or something like that. And um, I've been thinking very much about my, my son he is an incredibly spirited uh, character. He loves performing and uh, he is constantly, he's just learned how to rap really, really fast, which is incredible. Um, he would not fit in mainstream at all. And I know I could, I could just see it from when he was two, I just knew he was going to be squashed. And if I had something at that point where I could just put um, all of the little bits that he did that really showed who he was, from a toddler and the thing the passionate things about you know Naomi Fisher was talking on um Fabienne's wonderful podcast uh Flourishing Education um earlier about you know children at two and love love diggers you know they're really passionate about diggers and they, everything's a digger and they somehow manage to alter their environment so that diggers are suddenly their curtains and their bedspreads and they're everywhere and then at school they're suddenly told okay that's not actually important what's important is this um, and I'm thinking exactly what happened to me as a child as well. I went into school. Um, he said, what's your name? And I said, and at that point I was Katie, my name's Katie. And they said, no, it's not. It's Catherine. And I was just like, oh, wow. Okay. There goes my identity, my voice, my agency, everything wow. <laughs> in one fell swoop. 
like how do we keep that how do we keep that and how do we make sure that education's outcomes hold on to that and i have a theory that some kind of um uh education journey and we've got the we've got capability now we've got ai all sorts of stuff that we can we can throw at this um some kind of education journey that really captures the things that children are passionate about when they're young and 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 watches their project cycles as they ebb and flow and see where their um, flashes of inspiration are where the realism's kicked in and they've kind of gone into a bit of a struggle pit where they've somehow found another way out that might look different to what they were doing before but that really shows those kind of like and I'm drawing you can't see on a podcast but I'm drawing a nice little sort of flowing line um that we can see all of these project cycles kind of um, growing out from 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 this child and, and, and see where their passions are going and see what kind of a person they are. And you could also have a snapshot of something like this that's a really kind of like surface level snapshot that 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 could be anonymized. So we get rid of all of these sort of um, unconscious biases and things like that, that that so that, ed, that um, universities and employers and stuff could see something like this as being a beautiful flowering fractal that you can go zip into and dive into and look at the photos and videos if you want to but not if you don't want to and that could be an amazing way of of capturing a child's um learning journey and there are challenges in that obviously because um you know we have children from all different backgrounds and as Kate was saying, all different, you know, they have such different and vastly different experiences. It doesn't mean that any of those experiences are any less valid on this journey. They all add their grit and resilience and all of the things that mainstream like banding around as, uh, as things that you want to develop in a child. Um, but, they, but they could be like spun so beautifully to show that child as they, as they really are. So when they come out of education, actually, they've got a fabulous portrait of who they are and of what they can do and of where their passions, their deep passions from way back have kind of exploded and explored. And I think that could be really special. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is an ongoing conversation that I've been having with Kate and her colleagues at the Hive to develop something that captures learning in the sorts of way that you're describing. Uh, Lucy, would you like to come in here? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's fascinating conversation, and I think you know this um, like agree with everything that everyone's saying. You know, I think what's what's really so challenging for us in the UK is you know as as Hayley said, you know that model is near on Im well impossible to create within a school right now. And I think you know what I would love to see is actually you know the influencers coming together, you know, the big business that can say, you know mm -hmm. what, we don't want grades on our application form yeah. anymore. I want to see what you're describing, Kath. You know, it's the mm -hmm. EYs, it's the PWC, you know, they're already grades blind, fine, but it's it's about them asking for something different. And it's yeah. also then it enables parents to say, okay, I can see that actually my young people don't need to have 10 GCSEs and you know four A levels all at A star and and therefore I don't need to, to push for that for them that mm -hmm. I can do what feels better for my for my kids um and because I think you know people power and business power influences policy yeah I was going to say there's still a huge amount of 
nervousness with parents. I think whenever you have a conversation, you know, around the dinner table, most comes often comes down to education. I felt squashed at school. My spirit got broken. I didn't get to be who I wanted to be. I know I'm doing the same thing to my children. I wish it could be different. You know, what it can be, ah, yes, but if we go down that road, what if they can't get into university? What if they can't get a job? What if they don't get their... The, 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 there's so much attached to getting the exams because we've been told our whole lives that these, these exams are the keys to the doors that we need to open to get to the future that we want to have. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have these keys, our children will forever be stuck on the wrong side of these doors of opportunity. Um, and no parent, like it's very, very difficult. Some parents do. Some parents don't believe it and they, and they do, they do take their children out and they do homeschool them. Um, but there's not enough information out there, I think, for parents to understand that, yes, you, your children can get into university without straight A-levels. And they can travel the world and get interesting jobs and do all these things without straight GCSEs and A-levels. And there's not enough information available for families to make these decisions at the moment. There's not enough option available for families. And so mm -hmm. I hope that this conversation leads to other people hearing it and going, well, I'm doing something different and I'm doing something different. And we're a university mm -hmm. that allow children in who've been homeschooled and we're a university and this is our entrance policy on we're employers and we encourage children from these kinds of backgrounds to come to us. Because I think if parents were more confident that those doors mm -hmm. would remain open for their children, then they would make braver choices for their education and then we would have that parent push and the employment push that we need to knock over the system that we currently have. Absolutely. I think also, um, you know, I, I completely agree with what you're saying to a certain extent, Kate, but I also, I hear that familiar slight narrative in, in what you're saying that's, that gets my back up a bit because it starts to sound like, you know, we're always talking about the alternative for those, almost those who can't. So those who can't, you know, this is the alternative. But I think the conversation should be more about this is the alternative because it's better. And also, yeah. it's not a conversation about whether they should or shouldn't get grades. I don't think grades should be the big part of the conversation. You know, at our school, my, my you know, my kind of ethos and what I tell my parents is very simple. Absolutely, they need to get the GCSEs. Absolutely, we want them to get their personal best. Some children will do five, some children will do 10 in our school, and it'll be an individual conversation with those families about what's appropriate. We're not interested in where we sit on league tables. We're interested in personal best for those individuals to open the next door. That is the reality of life as we know it at the minute. However, we do not need to make a child's educational experience all about that for 13 years. And that's that's the thing that I think is so important because actually what we, we need to the, the conversation is much more nuanced and sensitive than just whether exams matter. Because if we just took exams away, we'd have a huge, we'd have a huge issue. Uh, and you know, it would be a problem. And it's not a problem that we've you know even begun to want to try and sort of work out how we would get around that. So I don't think that's the issue. I think what we need to do is is be a bit more sophisticated as a, you know, as a, as a kind of a larger conversation about what is success for your child. And that's what I want to point my parents towards. Really think about what does a successful life 
mean to you for your child? And let's then link that with these values around a, a, a more holistic education, a more connected education, and how they play together. For example, you know, what does it look like to be somebody who's living their best life? Well, to me, a successful life is managing at some stage to have a successful relationship where you might get a partner for life, a soulmate, and make a great life and have that best friend, that best buddy, that fantastic lover for the rest of your life. That's what enriches us as adults. You know, having a good relationship with your parents is very, very key. Maintaining and making friends and having lifelong friends that will be there with you, you know, for the rest of your life. Being a good parent yourself, which can so easily, which we can all so easily get wrong and takes huge amounts of education. It's a huge educational journey right from the second they're born. Um, because we have to undo all the, you know, crap that we were sort of put through really <laughs> in, a, you know, well-intended crap, but a lot of it was crap. So, you know, and at, at the end of the day, this is where, for me, curiosity has got to be at the really at the heart of what we're trying to foster. We have to foster a, a desire in children to want to know more. And I don't mean more things, and I don't mean to do more things. What I mean is, is that we need to find the the, the little tuning, to, you know, the, the tuning knob in their brain where, when something goes wrong in a relationship, i.e., their friend and it breaks down, and there's an argument. Instead of saying, you know, having an emotional reaction and just teaching children how to self-regulate emotions, why not tell them and teach them to twist the dial to the curious place? If we go from emotional reaction to curious reaction, then we start getting interested in how we are responding, how the other person is responding. Then we start to tolerate other people's points of view. Then we start to ask internal questions. Why is my relationship with you know, my mother breaking down? Why is my relationship with my brother not as good as it once was? You know, why are why is my best friend, you know, seemingly treating me in a way that I feel uncomfortable about? You go from a curious and inquiring point of view, you're going to build relationships better with everybody, with your boss, with your employees, with your work colleagues, with your parents, with your children, you know, and so on and so on. And you will take away what has you know, I think we will solve what I think is a real problem of the snowflake generation, where parenting has just become about not letting our children feel the feelings because oh my god, if they feel the feelings, then you know it'll just be horrible and we've got to protect them from the feelings. No, we haven't. We've got to get them to feel the feelings so they know how to get through the feelings. And and to me, it all comes down to developing a curious and an interested and inquiring mind that will seek to understand not just things and stuff and how to do things, but how to make relationships work. And that's what's really missing for me in education, really missing. Mm. And it's really interesting how, although each of your four stories are different, there are such huge areas of overlap in your vision for what education should be about, about this like engaging with emotions and self-regulation and re the word relational has come up with mo uh, more than mm. once. Um, and I know that that's a big, big part of your work as well, Kate. Um, Kath, you were going to come in. Yeah, I've just had a couple of things, actually. Um, we've been talking on the Rethinking Mighty Network. Give it a little plug there. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, I think wonderful Sarah Fraser said how great it would be if we had a question such as rather than sort of, you know, what do you do for a living? How do you educate your children? Um, being as a kind of question to have as an open an open one 
um that 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 shifts that's a kind of like what if kind of question um and absolutely completely agree with everything you're saying kate and 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 hayley um the story of success that we have, the sort of work hard to get good grades equals happy life, um, is just not quite going to wash anymore. And uh, and the young people have woken up to that now. Um, I know when I was at school, we had I had a, I felt like I had a really um, uh, I was very lucky. I got I was sent by my wonderful hardworking grandparents um, to a private school in Surrey. But with that came this kind of entitlement that seemed to run through everything, um, uh, where it was kind of, you know, most people were told, you know, work hard, get good grades, blah, blah, blah. And there was this sort of sense of, you know, everyone else can sort of scrub along, but I'll be all right because my dad's just bought me a Golf GTI. And that feels really, really important to change. Um, and I, we haven't spoken about us all being women and things, but I think um, in terms of it's particularly male entitlement as well, that sort of I will take because I can and I, this is where I am in the world. Um, and then and then flipping it to what everything we're doing, which feels like it's entirely based on on a kind of gratitude attitude, really gratitude attitude um, where we just feel really grateful. And I think we've all said at various points, just feel that we've you know taken opportunities and been grateful for opportunities that have come our way to, to, to get where we are and to have you know the experiences and the stories that we have as well so I just wanted to throw that in there really gratitude for the fact that we're all incredible and all our children are incredible so <laughs> yes indeed thank you very much Lucy yeah I was just going to add you know to that kind of ad mini adults in the making thing you know I think Again, until at uh, systems level, we stop measuring things in terms of GDP. You know, we're, we're, we're always going to have that. You know, how, how what, what does, uh, you know, what's the economic benefit of an A instead of a B? You know, th the judgments like that within ed education. Um, and that's interesting for me in, in switching it to an economic argument around well-being and looking at that as, as a... Uh, uh, measure of thriving of, of at the level of person and at the level of a city even and I think you know I, I understand naturally that that parents want to shape their child's future and give them the experiences and enable their education but actually young people's voice should be centered in that and I think if you can enable a system that holds itself accountable to well-being and the the huge early broad measures that look at well-being as an economic argument then actually you you set the foundation and ultimately isn't that what we all want young people to be mm -hmm. happy and who they are and actually it allows them to then define within that because you're holding a school accountable you're holding a system accountable but just to a different measure and I think that uh, is another systems level change that I would really like to see yeah I suppose for a while, there's going to be, we're going to have to do both for a while. We're going to have to, our um, vision at the Hive is that we will, for the children who want to take external exams, will be supported and enabled to take them. GCSEs, SATs, International Baccalaureate as they go through, but those who do not wish to will not be made to. Um, and that for a while, we'll need to run with both systems. I think you can't just remove one system and not expect chaos to flow into the vacuum. Um, 
But we need, and, and that's why the rethinking assessment um, group is so interesting. They're looking all around the world. And there's a few alternatives out there. There's a few towns and cities that are introducing digital badges, digital portfolios, that kind of um, from four years old all the way through to 16 or 18 that you take your portfolio with you when you go. But a lot of them to me are still held by the gatekeeper to that information mm. is the institution that you are inside. It doesn't belong to you, the learner. It mm. belongs to the person who's providing it for you. And somebody's still guiding your choices. And I, I suppose what I would love to see one day, probably not going to see it in my lifetime, but I would love that one day we got to the point where the learner is holding on to the power and the learner knows the value of their own learning experiences and can articulate the value of the learning experiences that they have up to the point that they are trying to get into university or trying to get a job or trying to get something else that they can talk about the journey that they made from liking diggers when they were four to, I don't know, doing a TEDx talk somewhere and why that's important to mm. what they want to do next. I, at the moment, I still feel like the people on the outside tell you what's important about the learning mm. journey that you've been on and they hold the value. And that's the shift that I would like mm. to see come. That's what I'm interested in. And we do, we have, we use compassionate curiosity. Um, I don't know if you know the work of Dr. Gabor Mate. Um, I love him. I'll just say that out loud on a podcast. I do. I have a massive brain crush on that man. I think he's wonderful. And one of the things that he's done that's changed my life is introduced me to the idea of compassionate curiosity. So instead of instead of saying, oh, what did you do that for? Or can't believe that thing happened. You reframe the question with, I wonder why that happened. Or I wonder why I did that. Like, why now? Why here? Why those words? Mm -hmm. Why that behavior? I wonder what led to that happening. And it's a game changer. And so when you when you go through that process with children, with relationships or with learning, I wonder why you quit at that particular point. Or I wonder mm. why you didn't quit this time. Or I wonder why you had an argument today and not yesterday. Or I wonder why, I wonder why, I wonder why that mm. happened. Um, that's a really empowering way. Like the the it again, for me, a lot of it is about is about finding opportunities for children to take more power. You can't give power to children, I have learned. They have to take it from you. So you have to be willing to hand some of it <laughs> over. And so I think there's gonna be a, a push-pull for a while between the old system where all of the power is held by the institution um, because we can't just hand it over overnight. That's not how it works. So we're going to have like an evolution. I'd like to see a gradual evolution from all of the power being held by the institution to most of it being held by the individual. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Something that's been occurring to me as we've gone through this conversation, somebody mentioned earlier about the incredible demand that there is for this school. And people are talking about the demand that there is also within organizations for young people who aren't just like autonomous drones who do what they're told but who are creative and innovative and can have confidence and can get along with people. And so there's an incredible amount of demand for the ideas that we're talking about here. And yet, as Haley mentioned earlier, 
in the UK at least, like to set up an organization that that extols and and um, centralizes and promotes these values and these ways of being uh, is shut down. Um, and and I think that's something that I'm hoping that we can do through this podcast and others like them is to shine a light on all of this innovative practice. And it seems that there needs to be some pushback. If it's true that there's been a change in policy in the DfE or in Ofsted or wherever the decision has been taken to start shutting down alternative schools, like you, you are not dangerous people. I think that we can establish that. You know, this is not a, this is not like a madrasa that's going to be brainwashing young people into, you know, dangerous ways of thinking. This is like what the world needs, actually. Um, and so I hope that we can inculcate a little bit of compassionate curiosity among listeners to think about, oh, I wonder if it's possible for me to set up a school like this, to, to do something mm -hmm. different, to break out of this the mainstream model and, and to look at alternative funding models and all the stuff that we've been talking to. So I want to come on to that as a final point, if I may. But first, can we just come back to this question about the fact that you're all female? Because that's something that I think is really interesting. And like I say, you know, small sample size, but it's, it's fascinating because lots of the people that I've read about and that I've been familiar with their work who've worked in this field of like alternative education, self-directed learning, people like Ian Cunningham, who I worked with at SMLC, and A.S. Neal, and, you know, uh, Peter, um, Peter, what's the guy called? Peter? Gray. Thank you, Peter Gray. Gray. His name escapes me. <laughs> um, they're like the generation or two above us, right? And But but it seems like like there may be something in this, the fact that you're female and that, you're, that, that your own children have gone to the schools that you've set up, and that that was a big driving force. I wonder if there's anything in this and whether anybody would like to speak to that. Hayley. Uh, I think the answer is really simple. I mean, it's it's well logged, you know, historically that women have dominated education. Most schools are much more, um, you know, filled with female teachers than they are with male. Um, and also, you know, it's, again, I remember having a conversation, reminds me, and that's why I'm keen to, Stepping because this part of the conversation really reminds me of a chat that I had with a friend years and few years ago who went off on a trip um, around the world somewhere uh, in a very deprived country. I can't remember which one it was, and she was talking about how she visited an orphanage and how you know she'd seen this orphanage. It was really quite upsetting, but at the same time, the things that the, the you know the people were doing and the volunteers were absolutely amazing. And I'll never forget the way she just stood on the stairs in her in, in, in her hallway and she just said to me, it's always the women, isn't it? It's always the women that are there looking after the sickest, poorest, most vulnerable people. And that is true. You know, care homes are full of women. You know, <laughs> schools are predominated by women. It, 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 you know, orphanage, volunteers. It, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not going on some major feminist rant, but it is a theme. And so when you say, isn't it strange that you're all women? No, it's not, <laughs> because this is this is a common thread. Um, you know, I know some fabulous men in education, absolutely amazing, and have become, you know, really good friends and fantastic professional confidants and uh, and all the rest of it. I have, um, you know, three on my school improvement partners team at the moment. One of them being Guy Claxton, funny enough, as Kath was talking about his stuff the other day and uh, earlier on. And, you know, but I don't think it's a big bombshell that we're all, that we're women. I think it's a bombshell that you're a man <laughs> and that you're running the podcast. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll maybe go further on that. Kate. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's something to do with 
a change of platform. I wonder because men write more books than women write, I think, but women talk in circles together a lot. And I think that we have always been the powerhouse in the background. We've always been the group that get together to fix the problems, to drive the engine. But the man is in the seat with the cool hat tooting the horn, right? And now we have a platform that's different. We can sit in a circle and we can talk across the globe and our voices can be shared. We don't have to stop raising children and running schools and fixing all the world's problems. Because I've written a book. It took me three bloody years and it nearly killed me right? Trying to do that on top of everything else. There's no way I could write 16 books. I've got children to raise and a business to run Mm. and a house to clean. Like life, (laughs) dogs to walk. Um, And I wonder if it's that. I wonder if our voices are being heard because there's now a medium for our voices. Like we've all taken half a day off work to do this. We're all going back to work. Like I'm watching my phone out the corner of my eye to make sure there's no children on fire or the bus hasn't broken down. Um, and I wouldn't be able to write a book and do that, but I can do this. So I don't know if maybe it's that. Mm. Let's go, Catherine and Lucy. It's a big point. It's a good point. Very good point. Yeah. And and also I wonder whether, you know, we were all brought up in this mainstream system of education and that it's quite a kind of, uh, dominant, quite male really, um, environment of someone knowing all holding all the information and then you being sort of a submissive recipient of that information and trying to remember as much as possible and I wonder whether that's a reaction to that whether it's a balancing out yin and yang if you like um of us coming back up again really and saying hang on a minute let's go from dominant to relational to collaborative um let's make sure that the children have a voice um, and also it's all, all we've been talking about. It's about birthing, isn't it? It's like a, you know, it's the seeding of this idea, these kind of um, oak trees that are probably going to be, we're not as as old as we might well be. Um, the sort of ripples of our our endeavours are, are going to go way beyond the end of our lifetimes, hopefully. And that kind of planting of those acorns now is feels really important and and kind of actually it's it's kind of egoless really because just this stuff just needs to happen we need to have these conversations we need to be sitting around here we've all taken half a day off work because it just has to happen we need that balance we need something to kind of shift again to to enable um our kids and the generations and seven generations to come i think as mac mccartney always talks about um we need to be sat around that fire making those decisions and making sure that 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 the well-being and the welfare of children now and beyond um, are looked out for. Mm, thank you. Lucy? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if we're necessarily a representative sample. It'd be interesting <laughs> to know that. But I think, um, you know, what we've really touched on in, in this conversation is the relational and collaborative aspect of what it is that we do and what is needed in order to enable voice and young people you know that does is encapsulated in the feminine um that's not to say man can't have that feminine um take as well um i think what's uh typical of schools 
currently in the UK, particularly the academy model, is that they are incredibly managerial in nature. They, they you know, encapsulate the boardroom mentality and that, which is, uh, you know, uh, typical of that kind of masculine uh, top-down top down way of doing things. So I think, you know, that's potentially a, a reason as well. It's not to say at all that men can't do the same thing. I think it no. just... Whoever is, a, is able to work in a relational way is what is needed. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. Would like to echo that. So it's true about this sample thing, and I would like to know more. This idea that the, that the rethinking education mighty network and the podcast is sort of acting like a bat signal to bring together people um, who are working in these innovative ways. I would really love to hear from more people out there. If you're listening to this and you know of anything like what the, what we've been hearing about today, please get in touch because I'd love to hear more about what's happening out there. Um, and with this in mind, as a final question, if there's anyone listening to this who's thinking this actually may be doable, maybe I could start an, a school or an alternative to school, um, if they have a seed in their mind or in their belly or possibly both, what would you say to them? Um, and so let's start with Hayley and we'll work our way around. Um, that's an easy one. Get a consultant to help you. Get somebody who knows the rules and regulations about running uh, an independent school, if you're looking to run an independent school, you know, if, if uh, what we're doing is has an influence. Um, and I mean, even if you're not, even if you're looking at trying to do something you know, on Lucy's model uh, or, or a self-directed, you know, um, kind of more uh, sort of more of a, a homeschool type group, then I just get some professional help because otherwise I think it can be really wading through honey and with the best, you know, kind of utopian ideas and ideals for reform, it's painful when you don't know how the system that you're trying to work within actually works and once you know what they want you can find the language within your context to make sure that it transfers in, in into something that you know people like officer the dfe understand so get the help up front that would be you know that's the best investment i made thank you very much and just to be clear when you say get professional help that means people who know <laughs> to set up a school rather than you know <laughs> some psychological <laughs> assistance yeah no. i mean you'll need that too uh, there's no doubt about it have your therapists ready um but uh, but because <laughs> you probably will need them uh but no what i mean is have a i had a, a practicing officer inspector consultant work with me right from day one um who lucky you know i've found somebody and, and i've found other people since actually who genuinely really believe in in the reform but understand the standards that understand the framework that you're going to be judged by because you know there has been unfortunately a history of alternative progressive schools not doing that well with Ofsted and that's not mm. helping us that's not helping our cause because all that does is push us further down the road to I'll take it because my kid doesn't really work anywhere else so I don't really care how they do with Ofsted and it also doesn't, it's not credible. It's not credible for no. us to exist within a system when our alternative approach is not proving an impact. If it doesn't prove an impact with the people that matter, whether we like it or not, you know, it, it's not a good badge to have. It's not, it's not okay to say, you know, well, we've got all these fantastic utopian ideals and it's brilliant, we're going to change the world. But actually, the people who judge whether that's that impact is good on 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 children's uh, you know outcomes for the rest of their lives don't think it's very good. That's not working. 
that's not mm -hmm. working. So, you know, as much as I want to say, you know, up the ante and fingers to the system, that system will be part of what helps my children to thrive because it will bring other children into my school and so on and so on. Um, and it's credible and it's unavoidable. So therefore, just learn what it's all about and then you'll find, you'll understand it better and then you'll be able to say, you know what, I can relax. My children are making progress. I can prove it. I just need to learn the language and the way to prove it. Mm. Yeah. And that's what, that's been a big part of my journey where I've just, you know, gone from being like, just tell me what to do and what to say to, you know, now training my staff last night in how to verbalise what Atelier is about. Because when I sat down and said to them, Describe our curriculum. They looked at me blankly. These are people who've worked in education for years. Just what are our aims for education? Now, all the information's there, but it's washing around up here, and it's kind of a bit of this and a bit of that. And it's like, no, no, no. Okay, let's be clear. Our curriculum is made up of five key pillars of, of time that children spend in, in, with these aims. You know, our aims are these. This is what we're looking for. You know, lifelong learning, motivation. You know, efficacy, blah, 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 blah. And actually, when you really break that down, and I, as, as I said, having been through a mock uh, inspection for three days last week, it's through those couple of years of really honing those conversations with a consultant that I was able to do it absolutely off the bat. And her response was, wow, your vision is so strong. It wasn't articulated strongly 18 months ago, but I've practiced it. And now I know that I can defend my school and defend the impact it's making with credibility i think i hope <laughs> the fingers <Yeah>. crossed <laughs> i'll be egg on my face if we do badly now won't it <laughs> some good practical advice there uh, lucy what would you say to our would-be school starter um i would really sit down with yourself and de detangle whether it's just a desire to have something different for your children and uh Oh, I wish I could make a change with a, I've got the um, uh, capacity to undertake a project. Do not underestimate the no. massive impact that it has and how hard it is. That's not to detract anybody because it probably wouldn't have detract detracted me at all, but it's, um, it's so much more than an idea. And then I echo what Hayley said, um, be really clear what the skills are that you have uh, and find the ones that you don't. So, um, you know, my first person that I recruited was a project manager who um, won't be uh, embarrassed if I say, because she would tell you the same, but she describes her brain as a robot brain. I do not have a robot brain. Um, you know, you need someone with their Excel spreadsheet and 10,000 colours, lines, you know, timings etc um yeah <laughs> okay lovely thank you um Hayley I think we're gonna have to say goodbye to you now so um let's just do you want to, do you want to, do you want to say any last uh, last words before you leave us um well first of all just thank you so much it's been a really pleasurable afternoon it's been amazing to meet these um wonderful ladies we've been we've been um in a clandestine fashion, setting up our own WhatsApp group live whilst the podcast <laughs> is going on, uh, which we now have because we're all so inspired by each other. So, you know, if that isn't power to the multitasking 
uh, woman. I don't know what is. Uh, and yeah, and I, I yeah, I echo what everyone else has said. But we're obviously very, very aligned in our values, which is brilliant. And thank you to you, James, for bringing such a platform together because you know it's 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 your work and your time and your energy and capacity and desire to want to get the conversation bigger you know, more regular and, and and deeper that is will make the shift. Little things do make things happen. They do make a shift. Mm. Um, so, yes, thank you to all. And it's been fabulous. And I hope to stay in touch. Yes, indeed. We'll, we'll have you thank back. You. Did you know about the campfire conversations that we're having every other Saturday? So um, I'll send you some details about that. We'll have to get you to join us by the campfire sometime. Definitely. Yeah. I'd love Great to. Stuff. Sure. Lovely. Thank you. There you have it, folks. So the, the, the revolution won't be televised, but it will be podcasted. Um, let's go to Kate and then Kath. So very helpful and practical advice from Lucy and Haley so far. So I guess I'll add the I'll add the the softy human bit. Get a good team around you. Um, I think as as we've all alluded to, it's bloody hard work opening a school. Um, the fact that we've done it, three of us have done it in a pandemic as well, is just bonkers. <laughs> but I, I, there's so much to learn. So you go on a really steep learning curve when you <laughs> open a school. And so you're going to be in and out of that learning pit, in and out of the gorse bush of doubt, in and out of all of those difficult change cycles. And so it's really important to have people around you who believe in you and who believe in your vision because so many people will throw rocks at your vision and tell you that it can't be done. So this is a good gang. Like now I feel like I'm part of a gang of, of another, you know, of, of women who are doing the same thing as me and having my, having my vision echoed and also my challenges echoed back at me is hugely reassuring. So take the time to find your tribe. If you like, um, the Mighty Network is full of us. Um, mm. That's the bat signal that we've all answered and we've all found each other in there. Um, and 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 remember to, to, to look after yourself. You will need to fuel regularly and you will need to rest regularly. This is a marathon and not a sprint, but oh my God, it's worth it. It is the mm. most valuable work I think uh, that I have ever done. Um, so if you're worrying if you can do it, you can. Just be deliberate about it. Get the right team in place. Get your support crew in place. Get a plan in place. And then one step at a time, because it's worth it. Thank you very much. And lastly, Kath. Oh, wow, I get the final word. I better make this good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'm going to start with a warning that it will occupy your entire brain all the time. <laughs> Because I know that even at four in the morning, I'm sort of like got my cogs whirring, just going, oh, I've just got this great idea. I just need to do that. And people get messages um, from me at all times of the day and night. Um, I'm still um, breastfeeding my youngest son. So that kind of adds to the the thinking time that I have. Um, yes, and echoing what everyone else has said, find a great team. Um, I I love that video, I think, um, that's on YouTube where there's a guy who goes and does a crazy dance by a river and then and then he's just there on his own for a while and then suddenly like uh, someone else comes and joins him and starts doing the crazy dance as well. And and um <laughs> and then 
then suddenly the whole riverside is just like full of people doing crazy dancing like find that follower find that wingman who just gets you and gets the vision and you together can then do incredible things and I feel very lucky that I found several incredible wingmen to to help um, and who do um, reflect the different elements of my lacking personality I'm rubbish with details I find them really frustrating but someone one of my friends is brilliant with details and has that kind of dose of realism like come off your utopian ideal cap like just we need to do this now um and so yeah project managers are brilliant for that and and get people together who who are real doers what you want is the people who are not so much away from because you get a lot of people who are away from but the people who are really positive and towards something different and and that will really make um make everything just suddenly light up and 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 go on fire but yeah look after yourself as well and also be happy with uncertainty and trying new things it's a constant test and learn test and learn test and learn test and learn and the whole thing for me has been one giant inquiry project that I'm sure Kath Murdoch would enjoy picking the bones out of very much but uh, yeah I'll have to draw it in some kind of crazy diagram one day but um, it's been great to talk about it and also to meet everyone here it's just been fabulous thank you James Mm, absolute pleasure. Well, thank you all once again. You know, I just I love the way in which the way that you describe this process that you've that you've been on this journey that you've all been on. Um, you're sort of you're enacting exactly the qualities that we're talking about wanting the young people to develop, where they you know they're caring about the planet, they're caring about one another, they're looking after themselves, and you know acting out of curiosity and compassion. You know, this is what we want to see, and it's you're absolutely walking the talk. Um, it's been really lovely to spend this time with you. I hope that we've inspired a hundred such projects to uh, to take to spark and take root, and whatever metaphor you want to use. So, thank you all very much for taking the time out of your packed schedules to share your stories, and I look forward to uh, to hearing how you get on in the future. Thank you so much, James. It's been great. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having me back, buddy. Time is a measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change.